Welcome to the WGN Radio Theater Program 470 in the series. It's May 23rd, 2020. I'm your host, Carl Amari. Right across the council from me is the lovely Lisa Wolf. What's up, Lisa? Hi, Carl. How are you? We have a lot of classic radio shows. All the way till 3 o'clock in the morning, we have suspense to start things off. That's the life of Riley, crime and Peter Chambers, the story of Dr. Kildare, You Bet Your Life, the Jack Benny Program, the Screen Director's Playhouse, and Guest Star. Do you believe we're going to get all those shows in before 3 o'clock? Well, good thing we have listeners who love classic radio because we are chock full of classic radio this evening. And you know what? I am honored to uh, have joined the board of directors of the Museum of Broadcast Communications right here in Chicago. And we have a very special membership drive right now. If you go to museum.tv, you will see that there is 70 classic radio shows that are yours via digital download when you join the museum. It's only $49 a year. You get 70 classic radio shows and all kinds of other benefits. Well, of course, you're supporting the Museum of Broadcast Communications, and that's a great thing to do in and of itself. But with that membership, not only do you get the classic radio show downloads, you get free unlimited museum admission, free uh, exhibition previews, you get a monthly newsletter, you get a discount at the museum store, and invitations to annual member events. Go to museum.com. TV and check it all out. Join the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Let's take a quick break and then it's suspense. Hour one of the WGN Radio Theater. Lisa Wolf and I are here every Saturday night from 10 p.m. until 3 o'clock in the morning, bringing you now eight classic radio shows each and every week, all your favorite shows. And we're going to start things off with suspense. This was radio's greatest mystery series, came to CBS radio in 1942, lasted all the way until 1962. It was billed as radio's outstanding theater of thrills. And Hollywood's biggest names starred in these broadcasts. And for a while, it had a host known as the Man in Black, played by Joseph Kearns. It aired for 20 years nearly a thousand broadcasts and made a very successful transition to television beginning in 1949. We have a June 1st, 1953 broadcast now called A Vision of Death, starring Ronald Coleman. Here is Suspense. Autolite and its 98,000 dealers bring you Mr. Ronald Coleman in tonight's presentation of Suspense. Tonight, Autolite brings you the story of a mind reader who discovers his nightclub act is not a fake, a vision of death. Our star, Mr. Ronald Coleman. And now, Autolite presents A Vision of Death, starring Mr. Ronald Coleman, hoping once again to keep you in suspense. If I speak too rapidly for your stenographer, you'll tell me, won't you, Lieutenant? No offense, but, um... 
He impresses me as someone who has to sit on the floor to put on his shoes. And stop me if I seem to wander away from the point, won't you? I mean to say, this is my first and, I hope, final appearance in a police precinct, and I should hate to give a sloppy performance. We were always known, Aurora and I, for the smoothness and gem-like precision of our act. As far as this murder... Uh, rap, I suppose it's called, is concerned, an acquaintance with our act is the essential rabbit. Awfully good act. Smart, informal, occasionally humorous, and always mystifying. Well, the act always began with music, never with the cliché fanfare of trumpets or roll of drums. I would saunter out to the center of the floor and say something like, Good evening. You are about to witness an exhibition of mental telepathy. Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce Aurora, my wife? Ah, they never failed to give her a hand. What would they applaud? Why, the vision she presented as she came toward me. There has never been anyone as lovely as Aurora. The most beautiful flesh in the profession. Now, Aurora... Would you care to tell the audience, or shall I? You tell them, Judd, while I tie the blindfold across my eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, all mind readers employ a gimmick. A gimmick is a trick, a device. For example, when the mind reader threading his way through the audience says to the mind reader sitting blindfolded on the stage, a lady has given me a small object which I now hold in my hand, what is it? And the mind reader, sitting blindfolded, replies, a silver coin. The answer has not come through mind reading, no. It has come through the gimmick. A cue or signal communicated through the very question itself. But we don't do that. We do not. You will notice, ladies and gentlemen, that I never speak to Aurora at all. Now, are you ready, Rory? Ready, Judd. Here we go, then. Now, uh, you, sir, you have something? Good. Concentrate upon it like a good chap. And the you, gentleman madam. holds a coin in his hand. It's a Mexican peso bearing the date 1892. <laughs> oh, oh, that's very clever of you, madam. I'll be surprised if she gets this one. <laughs> the now, lady holds in her hand her other hand. <laughs> Yep, a sucker once born remains a sucker till death. The audience never realized, never in all the years we worked, that although I was not speaking to Aurora directly, my chatter nevertheless was loaded with signals and cues for her guidance. By revealing the gimmick, we concealed the gimmick, and that, Lieutenant, is the knee plus ultra of gimmicks. <laughs> yes, it was as crude as that, but it enabled us to work 50 weeks a year here and abroad at an average of over a 1,000 a week. Of course, I always gave some credit for our success to, to our agent, Harry Arnold, although Rory was inclined to give him no credit at all. Good news, Judd. I've managed to book the act into the College Inn in Chicago with a four-week guarantee. That's not bad, huh? Get him. He managed to book the act. I suppose they never heard of us in Chicago. I suppose we weren't held over there six weeks when we played the Saint Souci in 1948. Well, you think it's easy to get a four-week guarantee these days? Money is short, money is tight. I have never yet heard you say money is long, money is loose. You have to sweat for your 10%, don't you? Yes, you do. In a pig's ear, you do. Agents, they're all alike. There's gratitude for you. There's the milk of human memory. <laughs> what were you when I first saw you? Nothing, not this much. 
playing ten a day on the canvas in Menashe, Wisconsin, and paid off in bottle tops. I worked, I schemed, I sweated. Agents, all of them. All they know is how to live off a dead whale. Scum of the earth. I'm not going to take that from you, you hear me? You'll take it, baby, along with the 10%. You'll take it, you'll chew it, you'll swallow it, and you'll keep it down. How do you like that? I'm warning you, kid, don't push me too far. Don't uh, push uh, me too... Children, children, now on your way, Harry, and don't let it get you down. I think a four-week guarantee is pretty good. Thanks, Judd. If it wasn't for you, I'd... No, oh, I go into it. I'm going for a walk. But aside from these altercations between Rory and Harry, it was smooth sailing. We wore the best, ate the best, drank the best, stayed at the finest hotels. And every Saturday night after the performance, Harry would bring us our salary. He'd bring it in cash. Thousand, twelve fifty, fifteen hundred. <laughs> I've the old performer's distrust of checks. Been given too many with a high latex content. <laughs> anyway, life couldn't have been more placid. And then, one evening... About five weeks ago, soon after we opened up the Grove here in town, a frightening thing occurred. We'd just begun the act, and I was out in the audience. You will notice, ladies and gentlemen, that I never speak to Aurora at all. Now, are you ready, Rory? Ready, Judge. Here we go, then. Now, uh, you, madam, The lady you have holds in her hand a compact. It is platinum. It bears her initials, R.C. Uh, 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 you, sir. The gentleman you... is holding an engagement ring. In it are three small diamonds. I, I, uh, uh, miss, well, what would lady, you... The young lady is holding... It's a small... Cameo brooch. Huh. Rory. Rory. Uh, Maurice, music. I, I picked Rory up from the floor and hurried with her to our dressing room, almost beside myself with anxiety. I placed her on the couch, dampened a towel and put it on her forehead and began to chafe her wrists. Rory. Rory, honey, Rory. Judd, Judd. I'm here, Rory. Are you all right? Uh, I guess so. I don't know what happened. Well, you fainted away. Try to remember what happened. I, I felt funny. I don't remember. No, no, try, Rory. Try. Try to remember. It's important. I can't. Why is it important? You don't know? Rory, you don't know? You were calling out the answers before I even had a chance to give you the cues. <laughs> you believe in telepathy, Lieutenant? I don't mean the sort of thing Rory and I usually did. I mean real telepathy. Uh, I never did either until that night. I don't mind telling you I was badly shaken. I mean, after all, I, I knew we'd been using a gimmick, and suddenly it began to happen without the gimmick. Scared us to death. We didn't know what we were getting into, but we went on with the act. And in my mind, I began to search about for the answer. I found it, of course. You'll find a gimmick in almost everything, if you look hard enough. I've got it, Rory. We worked together so long that you know what I'm about to say before I say it. 
from my inflection, my pauses, even my movements. You see? Oh, Judd, that has to be it. Oh, this is marvelous. When Harry gets back, I'll tell him about it. And if I last till tomorrow, he can ask the management for more dough. As soon as he gets back. Next Thursday. Tonight. How much more should we ask for? Tonight? What made you say tonight? Well, I don't know. Well, you were there when he told me he'd be in Palm Springs till Thursday. What made you say tonight? I don't know. What difference does it make? Stop picking on me. So I made a mistake, so what? <laughs> I, I don't see how you can make such a mistake, that's oh, all. Oh, Judd, leave me alone. I've been worried half crazy about really being able to read your mind. I've been under a strain. So Harry's coming back Thursday and not tonight. All right, are you satisfied? He'll be here Thursday, not tonight. You just in stone, mister? This dressing room, eh? Yeah, what is it? Telegram, sign here. Uh, sign for it, will you, Rory? There you are, kid. Judd, I'm sorry I blew up in your face. Judd, what's the matter? It's... it's from Harry. He's coming in tonight. And he did, too, Lieutenant. Rory was so upset by it, she couldn't go on at all that evening. She had no explanation for how she knew, none whatsoever. I don't know, Judd. I, I just don't know. My mind seemed to go blank. I seemed to hear a voice whisper in my ear, Harry Arnold will be with you tonight. That's all. When we got back to our suite at the hotel, Harry was there, waiting for us. Well, what happened? Well, what happened? You both look like ghosts. Look, Harry, I'll tell you some other time. Leave us alone, will you? All right, I'm going. I just came to wish you a happy birthday and to give you this. Birthday? Oh, oh, oh thanks, Harry. Yeah, thanks. What is it? Well, open it, why don't you? It's a bathrobe. A red silk bathrobe. With your initials. That's right, it's a red... How does she know? How do you know? Get out of here! Get out of here! Judd, make him get out of here. I won't be talked to like that. I don't care who she is. I won't be talked now, to now, like Harry, that. Harry, shut up. For heaven's sake, shut up and go away. Leave us alone. Go. Get out. Get out. You too, Judd? She's got you talking against me too? All right, I'm going. I'm going, but from here on in, it's strictly business between us. I wash my hands. He kept his word, Lieutenant. From that time on, he kept himself to himself. And I was prepared to let it go at that, much as I liked Harry. Until the night I was awakened by Rory, moaning in her sleep. No. No, please, no. Don't. Rory. Rory, no. wake up. You're having a bad dream, no. Rory. No. Uh. Uh -huh. Chad. Chad. It's all right. I'm here. I'm here. Oh, Chad. What, Rory? The voice. Whispering again? Yes. Oh, Judd. What? He's going to kill me. Harry Arnold is going to kill me. And that, Lieutenant, was the beginning of the end of that. Autolite is bringing you Mr. Ronald Coleman in A Vision of Death. 
tonight's presentation in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. And now, Autolite brings back to our Hollywood soundstage Mr. Ronald Coleman in Elliot Lewis's production of A Vision of Death, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Rory, Rory, get a grip on yourself. He's going to kill me. Harry's going to kill Harry, me. Don't be ridiculous. Stop it now. It was just a bad dream. He's going to kill me. Now, will you stop that? Will you stop saying oh, that? Judd, hold me. I'm frightened. Harry's going to kill me. You've had a bad dream, I tell he you. He hates me. He hates me. Oh, Judd, he's going to kill me. I'm a rational man, Lieutenant. I've always felt, for example, that when Hamlet says there are stranger things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy, Horatio, Horatio, ought to reply, tell that to Sweeney. I knew there was no such thing as mental telepathy. I knew it as well as I know I'm sitting here talking to you. Up here in my head, I knew it. And yet, the next afternoon, I found myself entering a gun shop and purchasing a revolver and a box of bullets. Determined that before Harry Arnold could so much as injure one hair of Rory's head, I would kill him. I should have gone directly to the police first. <laughs> You're using hindsight, Lieutenant. I had all that out with Rory. Please, Judd, please, go to the police. Tell them about this. Let them handle it. Well, tell them what? That by reading his mind, we've learned Harry intends to murder you? They'll believe us. They've got to believe us. You're reasoning like a child. They'll decide that it's either a publicity stunt or else that we're both lunatics. But if I tell them about the telegram and the birthday present... Rory, we have no proof. We have to do something. What? Tell me what. You know he intends to kill you. I know he intends to kill you. But what can we do? Do you know when he's going to do it or how he's going to do it? No. He hasn't decided yet. Oh, Judd, isn't there anything we can do? Nothing. Except wait. I reacted to the waiting as you might expect, Lieutenant. Sleeplessness, loss of appetite, growing irritability. I flared up at everyone. Waiters, chambermaids, elevator boys, the manager of the club... The manager of the club. He finally said to me... Stone, what the devil's gotten into you? I'd really like to know. None of your business. Well, look, I'm only trying to be nice. Oh, shut up and leave me alone. Sure, I'll let you alone. I'd let you alone right now if your contract didn't have another week to run. But after that, I'll let you strictly alone. You'll never work this club again. You maniac. <laughs> I began to drink quite heavily quite noticeably. I was going crazy just from the waiting. And then the waiting came to an end. It was around three in the morning. I was sitting up in bed, in the dark, smoking, when Rory opened her eyes and said, Judd. Yes? The voice. Yes. He... He's going to kill me here. Right here in this room. Rory... 
Saturday. This Saturday. At midnight. Oh, John. Rory. Rory, sweetheart. He's going to shoot me. He has a gun. He's going to shoot me. He's he's going to get you downstairs in the manager's office at the club. And while you're there, he's going to come up here. No, 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 Rory, Rory, listen to me. I want you to listen to me. You're mistaken, do you understand? You've been having another bad dream, and that's all there is to it. No, Judd, I swear it. He just thought of it, just this minute. He's standing at a bar, standing there all by himself, drinking. And he's just this minute decided. You're... you're making it up. Judd, no. It's... It's the bar over the Tuscany Hotel. I see it so clear. Oh, you're wrong. You're wrong. I'll prove you're wrong. Desk. Uh, get me the bar at the Tuscany, will you? Over on Sunset? One moment, please. You'll see, Rory. He's not there at all. You'll see it's just a dream. Just a bad dream. Tuscany Cocktail Lounge. Hello. Is uh, Harry Arnold there at the bar? Harry Arnold? No, I'm sorry. He's not. He's not? You sure of that? Sure, I'm sure. He was here all evening and left about a minute ago. I said goodnight to him myself. Want me to have... Uh, Look. Look, Lieutenant, my hands... It's just the memory of how I felt at that moment when my hands begin to tremble again. Amazing, isn't it? Now, that was last Thursday night, or rather Friday morning. Towards daybreak, Rory sobbed herself to sleep, but I was restless. I got dressed and went downstairs and and got into my car. The long drive has always relaxed me. But when I got behind the wheel, oh, I don't know what it was, possibly the fresh air, but... But all at once, I felt as though I couldn't keep my eyes open for another moment. Simply had to have some sleep. So I... I crawled into the back seat, curled myself up in one corner, pulled the rug over me and went out like a light. I was awakened around noon by the sound of voices. Don't smile at me, you idiot. They may see us. Look businesslike. Where is he? I don't know. Since he hasn't got the car, he must be out walking. But did he fall for it last night? Just like he fell for all the rest of it. The red bathrobe, stooges you planted in the audience. He even phoned the bar just after you left. Oh, I timed it beautifully. Satin skin, satin skin. I can hardly keep away from you. After tomorrow night, we'll have all the time in the world for each other, Harry. You bought the whole story that it's going to happen at midnight? Tomorrow, your place? Every word. Just do what you have to do now. Remember to come to the dressing room before the 8 o'clock show... Tell them you've set up a meeting with Stamper, the manager, in Stamper's office at 12. Yeah, I want them to shake hands and be friends again, I'll tell them. Yes, and don't forget, when you come to our door at midnight, keep talking to the elevator boy. Don't let him go, whatever you do. You want him to testify with self-defense. Don't worry, I won't forget a thing. You'll handle all the rest of it? Just leave it to me. I mean about his gun. That's pretty important, you know. Don't worry. It'll misfire. It'd be difficult for me to tell you what I felt as they walked away, Lieutenant. One part of me felt the way a man ought to feel, I suppose, when he... when he learns that the woman he loves is not only unfaithful, but plotting his death as well. But another part of me felt only relief. 
relief at learning there was a gimmick in this too. Ah, they'd been fairly clever for amateurs. Harry had a good excuse for carrying a gun to protect the cash he brought me each Saturday. My own behavior in recent weeks would lend weight to what he would probably offer in his defense, that I must have been crazy, that for no reason at all I'd opened the door, pointed a revolver at him, and threatened his life, that he had to shoot in self-defense. The presence of the elevator boy, well, that could mean only that Harry would shoot just as soon as I opened the door. I'd be found dead with a revolver in my hand and a heartbroken agent at my side. Tableau. I found myself hoping, as I never hoped before, that they'd come to their senses before Saturday. That they'd realize what a vicious, inhuman thing it was they were planning. But just before the eight o'clock show that night, there was a knock at the door of our dressing room. Come in. Uh, Judd, I've been talking to Stamper, the manager. He's sorry there's bad blood between you and wants to square it. I told him you'd be in his office at 12 to talk things over. All right with you? Yep. We don't want it so this will never work here again, do we? I mean, there's no reason we should. No reason at all. Button my dress, Judd. Uh, see you later, Judd. Yeah, later. Well, we did the show and then went up to our suite. I convinced Rory that I should meet Harry alone, and then I helped her pack a small overnight bag. I loaded the revolver, and then there was nothing to do but wait. The minutes passed. Nine o'clock, ten, ten-thirty, and I waited. Judd? Yes? It doesn't seem right to leave you here alone. Harry might... No, no, you go. Things might not turn out as I planned. I might not be able to stop him. If I fail to stop him... No, no, it's best that you go. Just wait at the motel until you hear from me. Uh, what time is it? Almost eleven. Two minutes of eleven. I... I'm out of cigarettes. Desk? Uh, this is Mr. Stone in 1101. Please send up a carton of players, will you? Right away, Mr. Stone. I want you to go now, Rory. Judd, let me call the police, please. Oh, it would be useless. We've gone into it and it would be useless. Well, then come with me. He won't find anybody here. Then he'd choose another place, another time. Now, here's your valise. You have your gun? In my pocket. You, you won't take any chances. I don't know what I'd do if you were hurt. No, I won't take any chances. Uh, let me help you on with your coat. Oh, Judd, I love you so. Yeah, I know. And I love you, Rory. I really do, you know. You ready? Yes. Eleven o'clock. You'll be here in an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go now, Rory. Kiss me goodbye. Judd. Oh, the cigarettes. Uh, get them, will you, darling? Will I find change? I shall always remember the look on Harry's face, Lieutenant, as she sank to the floor. They'd concocted a bad dream between them and it had come true. I'll bet he still doesn't know how it happened. 
If you pass his cell, you might tell him. Just whisper the word gimmick into his ear. Yeah, that's what I said, gimmick. I gimmicked the clock while Rory was dressing. Set it back a full hour. It was 11 to her, but 12 to him. <laughs> I adore gimmicks, don't you? Suspense. Presented by Autolite. Tonight's star, Mr. Ronald Coleman. This is Harlow Wilcox speaking for Autolite and bringing back our distinguished star, Mr. Coleman. Thank you, Harlow. You know, it's been over two years since I last played in Autolite's theater of thrills. But I've listened to Suspense attain new dramatic heights this season. With such exciting fare as Edwin Drood and, of course, Othello. Harlow, my congratulations to our producer-director, Elliot Lewis, and to Waterlight for magnificent radio entertainment. Thank you, Mr. Coleman. And friends, you can always expect the finest from Autolite, the world's largest independent manufacturer of automotive electrical equipment. Every Autolite product is backed by constant research and precision built to the highest standards of quality and performance. No wonder Autolite serves the greatest names in the industry. Yes, from bumper to tail light. You're always right with Autolite. Next week, we recreate one of the great mysteries of the sea. A ship found drifting in perfect condition, but with no human aboard. The mystery of the Marie Celeste. Our star, Mr. Van Heflin. That's next week on Suspense. Suspense is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis, with music composed by Lucian Morowick and conducted by Lud Gluskin. A Vision of Death was adapted for Suspense by Walter Brown Newman from the original story by Jerry Hausner. In tonight's story, Mary Jane Croft was heard as Aurora. Featured in the cast were High Aberback, Benny Rubin, Julie Bennett, and Charles Calvert. You can buy Autolite Stayful batteries, Autolite resistor or standard type spark plugs, and Autolite electrical parts at your neighborhood Autolite dealers. Switch to Autolite. Good night. This is the CBS Radio Network. And that's Suspense with a Vision of Death from June 1st, 1953, starring Ronald Coleman, sponsored by Autolite, as heard on CBS. Hope you enjoyed that. All right, Lisa, are you ready for the life of Riley, at least half of it? Uh, if it's about tonsillitis, then okay. <laughs> it is, actually. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> the Life of Riley was a great comedy series. William Bendix starred as Chester A. Riley, devoted family man and airplane riveter. This series was created by Irving Brecker as a radio series for his good friend Groucho Marx. He was going to call the show The Flotsam Family, but for some reason it didn't sell. And then years later, he retooled it, called it The Life of Riley, and hired William Bendix, and the rest is history. As they say, that's right, history. Uh, we have a broadcast for you now from February 23rd, 1951, called Tonsillitis. William Bendix stars. Here's part one, the first half of The Life of Riley. Hey, Riley, 
Yeah! What'll you have? Pabst Blue Ribbon. What else? Smoother, smoother, smoother flavors. Nest and sparkle, million flavor. Taste that smoother, smoother flavor. Pabst Blue Ribbon beer. What'll you have? Pabst Blue Ribbon. Internationally famous Pabst Blue Ribbon, finest beer served anywhere, proudly presents The Life of Riley, starring William Bendix as Riley. No one can say that Chester A. Riley isn't a kind, thoughtful, considerate husband. Witness the scene that is taking place in the Riley kitchen right now. Riley is reading the evening paper. Mrs. Riley is doing the supper dishes. And as she bends over the sink... Oh! Peg, what's the matter? Ah, uh, nothing. Well, don't say nothing. I, I heard you. No, it, it's nothing, Riley. Well, why are you holding your back like that? Uh, have you got a pain, honey? <laughs> no, it, it's going away. It always does. You mean you've had this pain before? Well, I, I get it sometime when I bend over the sink. It's really nothing. I'll read your paper, forget it. Well, no, I, I will not. What kind of a husband do you take me for? You expect me to just sit here reading while you're bending over that pile of dishes in agony? No, I'm going to put a stop to that. I'm taking you to the doctor as soon as you finish those dishes. I don't need a doctor. I'm all right. We'll we'll let the doctor decide that. It's just a waste of $5 to go to a doctor for this. He'll just tell me to apply a heating pad. Don't be such a pessimist. Maybe he'll tell you you need an operation. I'm not going to a doctor, and that's all there is to it. You're scared. I'm not scared. Don't be silly. Peg, I'm surprised at you. You're acting like a child. Well, what's there to be scared of? Today, modern surgery can perform miracles. I know that. Well, I was reading in a magazine about an operation. It was just marvelous, a perfect piece of surgery. This patient had trouble with his ticker, see? So they cut open his chest, sawed through the ribs, lifted out the heart, and put it on a table. (laughs) And they kept it ticking all the time while they worked on it. They drained out the red corpse suckles and pumped in the white corpse suckles. It was a sort of a lube job. <laughs> then they put the heart back in, pushed the ribs together, and sewed up his chest. And the man lived? Well, no, but it was a perfect piece of surgery. <laughs> Mr. Riley, you can come in now. Oh, how is she, Doc? What did you find? Will she need an operation? Oh, no, it's nothing like that, Mr. Riley. Just a strained muscle. She'll be all right if she applies some heat. Oh, is that all? <laughs> well, you see, Peg, I told you there's nothing to be scared of. Well, thank you, Doctor. Goodbye. I'll see that she takes it easier for a few days. Don't let her exert herself. No laundry, no vacuuming the rugs, no heavy housework. Oh, yeah, sure thing, Doc. My little wife needs a rest. She's going to get it. The kids will do the work. Fine. Well, so long, Doc. Oh, uh, just a minute, Riley. Come over here. Me? Yes, I want to have a look at you. Oh, there's nothing wrong with me. I want to look at your eyes. They're brown. (laughs) Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, but I can see perfect, Doc. Now open your mouth. Yeah, but, Doc... Wider. Say, ah. Ah. That's what I thought. Those tonsils will have to come out right away, too. You, you mean an operation? There's a peg. He's after me. Ah, Riley, what's the matter? Well, he's got a batch of tonsils there. The sooner they come out, the better. Oh, 
really? Oh, no, you ain't going to operate on me. Nobody's going to cut me up. No, I don't believe in operations. <laughs> Nonsense. Now, you'll be at the hospital day after tomorrow at 9 o'clock. No, I won't go. You can't make me. I, I don't need no operation. I won't go. Now, the peg, you tell him. He'll be there, doctor. No, no. <laughs> this is a frame-up. I won't go. But, Riley, dear, I'm surprised at you. Why, you're acting like a child. I don't want no operation. (laughs) What's there to be scared of? Today, modern surgery can perform miracles. Why, of course. And a tonsillectomy isn't really an operation. Well, I've done so many, I could take your tonsils out blindfolded. Oh, yeah? (laughs) Well, if you want to get paid, you better peek. there, Gillis. Oh, hi, Riley. Uh, how's the ankle, Gillis? Yeah, coming along okay. Still swollen with a swelling. Uh, well, sit down on the steps here. Here, here give me your crutches. Thanks. Uh, how long do you still have to use these crutches? Oh, about another week. A week, huh? Yeah, that'll make three weeks you're laid up with that ankle. Well, that's tough. What's tough about it? No wait, take it easy, sleep as late as I want, family waits on me hand and feet, and I get paid every week from the company hospital plant. Uh, I, I never looked at it like that. Yeah, you're, you're lucky, all right. I gotta have my tonsils out, but I'll be back at work after one day. Imagine, I've been chunking in good dough to company plan every week just as long as you. And for once, I'm lucky enough to need an operation. Turns out to be tonsils. Why couldn't I get something that would lay me up at least a month there? Ah, cheer up. <clears throat> Come on. I'll buy you a bottle of Paps Blue Ripper. Oh, okay. Hey, why, why couldn't I have dropped a rivet gun on my ankle like you did? That I'd be going around on crutches, too, and... Gillis! Your crutches. You're walking without crutches. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I better run back and get him. <laughs> there might be a company spy around. Gillis, you can walk without him. You don't even limp. Okay, Riley, you caught me with my crutches down. <laughs> well, what's the idea? You can walk. Oh, sure. I was able to walk three days after the accident. I figured I'd drag it out a couple of weeks. <laughs> well, you sure fooled me. Your ankle looks so swollen. Yeah, well, that part's a nuisance. Whenever the swelling starts going down, I give it a little bang with the crutch to swell it up. (laughs) Some racket, huh? (laughs) I wish I had the guts to try a stunt like that. (laughs) Well, why don't you? How are you going to bang your tonsils with a crutch? (laughs) Don't tell them it's tonsils. Build it up. Say it's a serious operation. Lay up for a month. They'll never find out. Yeah, but Gillis, that ain't honest. That's, That's like stealing. Ooh, look who's talking. Ain't you the guy who showed me how to get a nickel back from a payphone by banging it? <laughs> Ain't you the guy who's always using old transfers on buses? And when you go to a restaurant, you order a steak, eat three quarters of it, then you start yelling to the waiter, it's no good, you make him bring you another one. <laughs> that ain't stealing. Well, yeah, but that's legitimate stealing. <laughs> As a citizen, I'm entitled to it until uh, I get caught. <laughs> well, so is this legitimate. After all, whose money are you collecting anyway? Not the company's. Yours. Uh, that's right. I've been paying for ten years and I never took advantage once. And I could have lots of times. During the war, there was plenty of times I was sick as a dog, but I went to work anyway. Even when I had temperature. And at that time, I had bronchitis. And when I had pleurisy, I never took a day off. Not once. Not even when I got my head caught in a cement mixer. <laughs> no, at that time, I did take a half a day off while they fixed the cement mixer. Yeah. <laughs> Enough I'm entitled to get some of it back. I'm going to do it. Out of port. Only, well, 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 suppose they find out. Well, how can they? I'm the only one knows what you're up to. 
Yeah, that's right. And I can trust you, can I? Well, you know you can trust me. What a question. <laughs> In the first place, I'm your best friend. We've been pals for 20 years. Yeah. And in the second place, if you squeal on me, I'll squeal on you. <laughs> Gillis, old pal, I know I can trust you to the limit. <laughs> uh, Mr. Stevenson. Huh? Oh, oh, it's you, Riley. Uh, can, I, can I see you a minute, boss? If it's about that overtime pay we owe you, you'll get the 25. But, boss, I told you there's $50 coming to me. No, Riley, only 25 No, no, no boss, 50 Look, I'll show you. Eight hours... All right, one. all right. I won't quibble over a few dollars. You'll get your 50 oh, thanks, boss. That 50 bucks will come in handy. Now that I'm going to the hospital. That's fine. I hope you... Hospital? But, yeah. That's what I really came to see you about. I... I need an operation. Oh, well, I'm sorry to hear that, Riley. Nothing serious, I hope. Well... Kinda. My ticker. Your heart? Yeah. Something with the red corpuscles. <laughs> well, Riley, I, I didn't know they operated for a heart condition. But uh, it's a new kind of operation. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. I think I read about that in a magazine. A marvelous operation. They practically took the heart out and then put it back in again. Miraculous. Of course, the patient didn't leave. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you worry, Riley. You'll come through. Yeah, I'll be laid up around three weeks. Oh, don't worry about that. Take all the time you want. Main thing is to get well and strong again. And remember, when you come back here, your job is waiting for you. Oh, thanks, boss. Uh, when is the operation? Uh, tomorrow morning, nine o'clock. Well, good luck, Riley. I'm I'm rooting for you. I just want to say that I can't say it. I got a great big lump in my throat. Yeah. Yeah, I know how you feel, boss. I got two big lumps in my throat. Oh, my, this is a nice, bright room you got, dear. You know, some hospital well, no, well, What are... time is it, Peg? Well, almost nine, dear. Already? What's the matter, dear? You nervous? M me? Nervous? Well, why should I be nervous? I'm... It's only a tonsil operation. There's nothing to be scared of. Well, who's scared? I ain't the least bit scared. I'm no coward. Well, then stop chewing your gown. Uh, uh. All right, Mr. Riley, on the stretcher. We're ready for you. Now. No, no, I ain't going. Let me go. I don't want no operation. I want to go home. Oh, Riley, stop that. Now, don't be silly. Peg, I'm scared. Why, a minute ago you said you weren't a coward. Yeah, sure I said it. I'm not only a coward, I'm a liar, too. <laughs> Now, come on, Mr. Riley. The doctor's waiting in surgery on the stretcher. No. Oh, come uh, on, Riley. Why, it's nothing. Zip, zip, and it's all over. Yeah, well, zip, zip, you get on a stretcher. <laughs> Mr. Riley, if you don't get on the stretcher, okay, I'll just... Oh, okay, I'll go quietly. I know when I'm licked. Peg, kiss me. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck, dear. Now, you, nurse... Oh, excuse me. I, I'm so scared I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Goodbye, Peg. And remember, I always loved you. 
And that's the first half of The Life of Riley from February 23rd, 1951 with Tonsillitis, starring William Bendix. We'll have part two in our next hour, but first, these words. Hey, Lisa, I want to make sure everyone out there in Radioland knows about Matt Burdine and his jewelry store, Burdine's Jewelers. Now, at Burdine's, you can take your unwanted fine jewelry and turn it into hard, cold cash. You know what? I had a couple of really nice watches, but I didn't wear them anymore. So I got them out of my safety deposit box, and I called Matt Burdine, a good friend of mine, and I said, hey, I have these two watches, and guess what? He paid me top, top dollar for them. Now, you can go to his website, burdeens.com, B-U-R-D-E-E-N-S.com. And Matt does three things at his store. You can either sell Matt your fine jewelry for top dollar, or you can buy incredible pieces of jewelry, or you can revitalize your jewelry into more modern designs like you did with yours, right? Right. I'd inherited a couple of pieces. They weren't my style. I called Matt Burdine, and he updated them for me so that I really appreciate them more and and what else you can do is you can do a FaceTime or a phone consultation with him just as well. Yep, and it's absolutely free. When you mention this radio show, he will give you a free appraisal. Now, there's two ways to contact Matt Burdine. You can go to his website, burdines.com. That's B-U-R-D-E-E-N-S.com. Or call a toll-free number and speak to Matt, one 800 Eight seven five four four one eight. That's Burdines B U R D E E N S dot com or one eight hundred eight seven five four four one eight. Take that fine jewelry that you don't wear anymore, turn it into cash. Make sure you mention this radio show so you can get a free appraisal. After the news, we'll have the conclusion to the life of Riley. Then it's Crime and Peter Chambers with your husband's double. Dane, Dane Clark. Clark. Yeah. I know. Her husband, Dan Wolf, and this guy, Dane Clark. They, they really could, do look a lot alike. They could have been twins. I'm I know. I'm going to post crazy. that. I'm going to post those, that photo again. All right. So uh, more of the WGN Radio Theater after the news. Welcome back to the WGN Radio Theater. In this hour, we will have the conclusion to The Life of Riley from 1951. Then it's Crime and Peter Chambers' Good Detective Adventure, starring Dane Clark. But Lisa, I am absolutely loving my Vistro meals that I had delivered to my house. They come frozen. You put them in the freezer. And when you're hungry, which is all the time if you're me. I know, me too. You just take one out of the freezer, pop it into the microwave or oven, and uh, cook it and eat it. You cook it and you eat yeah. it. The good thing about Vistro is with us always being hungry that it's super healthy and super delicious and uh, no chopping, no cooking, no cleanup. And it's all cooked from fresh organic ingredients from the Vistro chefs. Mm -hmm. So uh, what a great idea to deliver a wide variety of plant-based meals straight to your home. So check it out. Go to their website. It's Vistro.com. That's V-E-E-S-T-R-O. Dot com, you can get 15% off your first order on their website. That's right. When we come back, we're going to tune into The Life of Riley and Crime and Peter Chambers. Stick around.
Hour two of the WGN Radio Theater. Lisa and I are here every single Saturday night from 10 p.m. until 3 o'clock in the morning. Our executive producer is the great Mike Costella. And the reason why these classic radio shows sound so great is not only do we have the master recordings directly from the owners and estates on 16-inch transcription discs, but Mike then takes those shows and digitally remasters them. And those shows are what we include in the Classic Radio Club each and every month, and also on our website, 100radioshows.com. But join the Classic Radio Club. You will get 10 shows sent to you each and every month via digital download or on five CDs in a collector case. Go to classicradioclub.com and check it all out. All right. We are listening to The Life of Riley. Good comedy. Let's go back to February 23rd, 1951. This show is called Tonsillitis, and it stars William Bendix. Well, did you pay the bill, Peg? It's all settled. How do you feel, Riley? Ah, swell. Hurts a little when I swallow, but I feel great. Oh, that's good. Hard to believe that only a couple of hours ago, I was under the knife. I told you it was nothing. <laughs> you told me. Oh, All right, Mr. Riley, you're discharged. You can go home now. Ah, that's well. Well, what are we waiting for? Let's go, Peg. Uh, Mr. Riley. Well, come on, Peg. Why hang around here? Let's go home. Come on. Uh, Mr. Riley, uh, uh, don't you think you'd better get out of that nightgown first and put your pants on? Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, just for being fresh, nurse, I ain't changing my will. I was going to leave this hospital in my brain, but now I'm not. <laughs> well, you hold on to it, dear You'll never know when you'll need it uh. Anything wrong, Mr. Stevenson? You look worried I am, Millie I'm worried about Riley That's a serious operation Poor devil What time is it? Twelve o'clock I well, should have some news by now Get me to the hospital Yes, sir it's an awful thing to go through. You know, I, I didn't realize he was a sick man. Look, picture of health. Here you are. Hello? Blueview Hospital. Now, I'd like some information about a patient, Riley, Chester Riley. Uh, one moment, please. I'll check. Thank you. Millie, uh, don't forget to send Riley flowers. Hello? Yes, yes. How is Riley? Mr. Riley's gone. <laughs> <laughs> Gone. But but he was just operated on this morning. Well, it was all over very quickly. <laughs> Gone. What's the matter, Mr. Stevenson? Never mind the flowers, Millie. Riley's dead. <gasps> oh. You have just heard the first act of The Life of Riley, starring William Bendix as Riley. But now, here's an important question. What did you have? Pabst Blue Ribbon. What did you have? Pabst Blue Ribbon. A bottle of Pabst Blue Ribbon beer will always get a bombshell cheer. But you should see my smiling face when asked if I would like a case. What do you have? Pabst Blue Ribbon. What did you have? Pabst Blue Ribbon. What did you have? Pabst Blue Ribbon. Pabst Blue Ribbon beer. Smoother, smoother, smoother flavors. Zest and sparkle, million favor. Taste that smoother, smoother flavor. Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer. Finest beer served anywhere. And say, friends, 
Do you want to know the real payoff on how to judge truly fine beer? It's easy. You just pour yourself a glass of Pabst Blue Ribbon and make the three-way experts test. One, look at that clear color, that creamy head. Two, sniff that fragrant Blue Ribbon blend. Three, taste that flavor. The flavor the whole world knows, and you're bound to agree. Finest beer, sir, anywhere. Pabst Blue Ribbon beer. What'll you have? Pabst Blue Ribbon. And now back to the life of Riley, starring William Bendix as Riley with Paula Winslow and John Brown. Just a few minutes ago, Mr. Stevenson, Riley's boss, dialed the number of the Blue View Hospital, listened to the terse words from the nurse at the other end of the line, turned pale, and as the receiver fell from his limp grasp, he was heard to exclaim in a voice choked with emotion, Oh, Riley, he's dead. Ah, but little does Mr. Stevenson know that at this very moment, Riley is very much alive. Reclining comfortably in his bed at home, he's living the life of Riley at the company's expense. Ah, this is the life, Peg, lying in bed, nothing to do but read and eat, sleep late in the morning, no time clock to punch. <laughs> Three weeks of this and I'll never want to go back to work. <laughs> Three weeks? What are you talking about? Oh, yeah, that's right. I didn't tell you, did I? <laughs> <laughs> You'll be well enough to go back to work tomorrow. Nah, I'm going to stretch it to three weeks, a month maybe, maybe even a fortnight. Why, <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. You won't get paid. Uh-huh, you're forgetting about the company's sick benefit plan. <laughs> Mr. Stevenson won't give you three weeks' pay for tonsils. <laughs> Who's got tonsils? <laughs> I told him I'm having a heart operation. <laughs> Oh, Riley, how could you tell such a lie? Ah, it's such a lie. After all, my heart's only a few inches from my tonsils. <laughs> Riley, you, you can't do this. I, I won't let you. Why not? Stevenson fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. Don't worry, he says to me. Stay home as long as you want. The main thing is to get well, and there'll always be your job waiting for you. Oh, what a jump. <laughs> how did he ever get to be the head of a big company? I got more brains than my tonsils. <laughs> Riley, oh, you can't be serious about this. It's, it's dishonest. Oh, look who's talking about honesty. Oh. Why, I never did a dishonest thing in my life. No, I've seen the way you buy strawberries in the market. <laughs> you take all the big strawberries from the top layer of all the other boxes and fill up a box of your own. Uh, <laughs> I, I do not. Yeah, well, you get me to do it. <laughs> what about the time we went to that banquet? You bought a dress at the May Company, wore it to the banquet, and the next day you returned it and got your money back. Uh. Well, it, it, it didn't fit. It, it was too tight. Uh, well, who told you to eat so much at the banquet? <laughs> We're talking about tonsils. Now, look, Riley, I won't let you do this. Now, Peg, my head is made up. I won't let you, do you hear? I won't now, let please, you. please, please, don't get me excited. Remember my heart condition. Oh, I mean, uh, uh, you're going to phone Mr. Stevenson and tell him you didn't have an operation. Tell him it was postponed. I will not. Then I will. Oh, you wouldn't dare. Oh, wouldn't I? Just watch me. No, wait, wait, no, no, Peg, wait, no. Wait, wait a minute, okay. Okay, you win. I'll tell him when I go to work tomorrow. Well, now that's more like it. And the next time you try to pull all a right, stunt like right, that, that's you're... enough, Peg. Uh, somebody at the door. Now, shut my door on the way out, will you, Peg? You want to take a little nap? Yes? Oh, it's you! Yes, it is I indeed. Digby O'Dell, the friendly undertaker. 
goodness, Mr. O'Dell. You rang that bell loud enough to wake the dead. Believe me, I'd be the last person who'd want to do that. <laughs> May I come in? Oh, certainly. My dear Mrs. Riley, I heard the sad news about your spouse this morning. I expected you to tell me. Please accept my deepest sympathy. Oh, don't be so grim, Mr. O'Dell. Ah, you're a brave little woman. Tell me, did he suffer much? Oh, no. It was all over in a minute. Bully for him. He's much better off this way. That's what I keep telling them down at the office. <laughs> it had to happen sooner or later. The sooner the better. Oh, if only everybody had that attitude. May I see him now? Of course. In the bedroom. Beep! What's the matter? 25 years in the business. This is the first time I've ever heard one of them snore. Oh, is he snoring? Well, wake him up. Who, me? He's walking. Now I've seen everything. Well, what's the matter with you, Digger? You look as if you've seen a ghost. I have. Who, me? <laughs> Riley, a ghost? Believe me, Digger, I'm very much alive. <laughs> it's no laughing matter. The whole neighborhood is in mourning. Oh, you're kidding. Out of respect for you, the pool room has closed its doors for the rest of the day. <laughs> Why, this is fantastic. How did such a rumor start? I, I don't believe it. I assure you it's true. I passed Riley's plant a little while ago. The flag is at half mast. The men congregated in little groups, spoke of nothing else. Heart condition, they said. Heart condition? Chester Riley, you and your ideas. I knew something like this would happen. Oh, I, I've told you time and time again. Why can't you act like a normal human being? Hello? Hello, Mrs. Riley. This is Carl Stevenson. Oh, Mr. Stevenson. I've heard the sad news. <laughs> I'm in the neighborhood with some of dear Chester's friends. We'd like to drop in and pay our last respects to a fine soul whose departure has saddened us all. But, Mr. Stevenson... Don't try you... to talk. I know how you feel, but you must be brave. <laughs> we'll be right over. But, uh, Mr. Stevenson, hello. Mr. Hello? Well... That was Mr. Stevenson. He's coming right over to pay his respects to your widow. <laughs> How are you going to get out of that one, Beg? <laughs> uh, oh, I'm really dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, Laugh this one off. What'll I do? What'll I do? Peg, when he gets here, you, you tell him that I... That, that, that tell you, him what? Well, tell him that you... Well, you'll think of something. Tell him I... Oh, I, 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 no, no, not me. Because I'm not going to be here. Yeah, but Peg... You, you got you... yourself into this, now you get yourself out. You're not going to pass the buck to me. I'm going to lock myself in Babs' room and stay there. No, Peg, wait. <laughs> Fine wife I got. Digger, what'll I do? If Stevenson finds out I lied, I'll lose my job. How did this story about my being dead get started anyway? I... That's him. What'll I do, Digger? Oh, I wish. I wish. That's it. That's it. I'll play dead for a few minutes, and then he'll go away, and I'm safe. 
Riley, you can't get away with that. Well, playing dead's my only chance. If he finds out I'm alive, he'll kill me. <laughs> Come on. Come on in the bedroom. But, my dear man, playing dead, it, it's unethical. It's... It... Well, don't argue, Digger. It's my funeral. In that case, lie down. <laughs> okay. Close your eyes. Yeah. Hold your hand. Yeah, what else? Now, if you could only stop... No, I guess not. Uh, <laughs> let him in. But don't let him get too close to me. I had onions for lunch. Come in, gentlemen. I'm Carl Stevenson. I'm Digby O'Dell. Oh, yes. Oh, of course, I've seen your advertisements on the bus benches. <laughs> These are Chester's friends, Mr. Durkin, Mr. Shapiro. Yes, we've met. How do you do, gentlemen? How do you do, Mr. O'Dell? Is Mrs. Riley... Oh, uh, she's indisposed at the moment. I understand. Must have been a terrible shock. May we see him? This way, gentlemen. If you'll just stand here in the doorway. There he is. Poor Riley. He was a fine chap. Gee, he looks so natural. You did a good job, Digger. <laughs> Thank you. My card, gentlemen. Hard to believe Riley's gone. Yeah. Only yesterday we was playing Pinochle. And now... Poor Riley. At least he went fast. You have no idea how fast. <laughs> Mr. O'Dell, there'll be expenses, and I know Riley wasn't kind to save much, so send the bill to me. And uh, there was some overtime pay that was due him. I brought it here. It amounted to... Uh, <clears throat> $25. What's wrong? I could have sworn I just saw Riley twitch. As I was saying, the overtime came to $50. Now, gentlemen, perhaps you'd better be shoveling off. Yes, yes, of course. I extend my condolences to Mrs. Riley, and if there's anything I can do, you, you'll let me know. Yes, of course. Good day, gentlemen. Bye. All right, Riley, you can get up now. Yeah, we, we put it over, and we fooled him. We got away with it. He really thought I was dead. Oh, oh Riley. Peg, we got nothing to worry about. Oh, you told him. No, I played dead. <laughs> <laughs> you what? I had to. <laughs> Oh, boy, what a guy won't go through to hold a job. <laughs> you idiot. If you're dead, how can you hold your job? <laughs> what a revolting development this is. The Rileys will be back in just a moment, but right now... Oh, it's famous, not just here at home, but Timbuktu, too far off known. From the Virgin Isles to the Straits of Dover, it's Pabst Blue Ribbon, the whole world over. In Panama or any land, the local boys will pick your brand. 
If you will join them at the bar and sing these words with your guitar, what'll you have? Pabst Blue Ribbon. What'll you have? Pabst Blue Ribbon. What'll you have? Pabst Blue Ribbon. Pabst Blue Ribbon beer. Smoother, smoother, smoother flavors. Zest and sparkle, million flavor. Taste that smoother, smoother flavor. Pabst Blue Ribbon beer. Yes, sir, wherever you travel, to the far corners of the world or right here in the good old USA, you'll find folks enjoying that international favorite, Pabst Blue Ribbon. Remember, the quality that has carried Pabst Blue Ribbon around the world is yours for the asking. The next time the waiter asks you, what'll you have, tell him you want the world's number one favorite, Pabst Blue Ribbon, finest beer served anywhere. Peg, that you? Yes, it's me. Well, did you see Stevenson? I saw him. Well, what'd he say? Sends his wife to beg for his job back. Well, what did he say? Was he surprised to hear that I wasn't dead? Surprised, but not overjoyed. Yeah, well, is it okay? Do I get my job back? Yes. Lucky for you, he blamed that nurse at the hospital. Oh, then I can go back to work tomorrow, huh? No, the day after tomorrow. Well, why not tomorrow? Tomorrow, he wants you to see his psychiatrist. Uh... So... Riley, you've got to see a psychiatrist, huh? Yeah, well, what's he going to do to me, Harry? Well, he'll have you lie down on his couch, and when you're nice and comfortable, he'll ask you questions. Questions? Sure. You'll probably say, uh, Mr. Riley, what'll you have? Oh, oh, I ain't nuts, Doc. The only answer to that is Pabst Blue Ribbon. Finest beer served anywhere. Smoother, smoother, smoother flavors. Zest and sparkle, millions favor. Taste that smoother, smoother flavor. Pabst Blue Ribbon beer. What'll you have? Pabst Blue Ribbon. Pabst Blue Ribbon invites you to join us again next week to hear The Life of Riley, starring William Bendix as Riley. Tonight, just a few hours from now, Pabst Blue Ribbon brings you direct from San Francisco another exclusive Pabst Blue Ribbon event in sports. The 10-round heavyweight fight between former world heavyweight champion Joe Lewis and San Francisco's own Andy Walker. The whole world is waiting for the outcome of tonight's fight as Joe Lewis guns for his fourth comeback victory. See your newspaper right now for time and station in your city for the big fight tonight. Harry Von Zell speaking. Here at Tallulah Bankhead's wonderful big show, Sunday on NBC. That's The Life of Riley, February 23rd, 1951, a show called Tonsillitis, with participating sponsors starring William Bendix, along with Paula Winslow and John Brown, on a show as heard on NBC. All right, I didn't realize your husband... Dan Wolf did radio back in 1954. Well, he had a surname then. He called himself Dane, not Dan, and he went by Clark. So uh, it's Dane Clark, and now yeah. it's Dan Wolf. Same guy. Yeah, same guy. He didn't age. He, he looks about the same now right. in 2020. Well, he's living the life of Riley. So. <laughs> As he did back in 1954. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it's really it's really kind of uh, uncanny, really, when you look at Dan Wolf, your husband's picture, and Dane Clark. They look like they could be twins. Well, I think they are the same person. I have, uh, I did a little <laughs> uh, picture where I put them next to each other. I'm going to post it on our Facebook. You let me know what you think. See if you see the resemblance. All right. Time for crime and Peter Chambers. 
This was a really good detective series, came to radio for one season in 1954. It starred Lisa's husband, Dane Clark, and he was a New York-based detective who worked alongside the police, Bill Zuckert, played Clark's best friend, Lieutenant Lewis Parker, and it had top New York supporting players, including Roger DeCoven, Leon Janney, Leslie Woods, and Lawson Zerby, with Fred Collins announcing. We have a radio broadcast for you now called the Robert Wentworth Case. From June 1st, 1954, this stars Dane Clark. Here uninterrupted is Crime and Peter Chambers. And Peter Chambers. Created by Henry Kane, transcribed and starring Dane Clark. Private investigator, duly licensed and duly sworn, Peter Chambers. private eye. That's your business. Anything else, that's for laughs. You're strolling along Fifth Avenue on a beautiful spring afternoon and you stop at the window of Fitch's department store for a peek at the styles. And then suddenly, she's there beside you. A tall blonde with curves, an electric blonde with voltage. She looks undecided, seems as though she wants to say something and... Well, maybe spring has gotten into you. So you start the ball rolling with a deckless piece of dialogue. Beautiful day, isn't it? Yes, lovely. And uh, and the weather, the weather, it's uh, perfect for strolling. Yes. Um, may we stroll? Yes, yes, of course. My name is Angela Wentworth. I'm uh, Peter Chambers. We're going to call on my uncle, Mr. Chambers. We'll go there directly, if you don't mind. Uncle, she says. We're going to call on my uncle. Well, it's springtime in Manhattan and the squirrels are out. But if that's the way she wants it, she's far too beautiful to argue with. So you accompany her to Madison... And in the elegant hotel, you ride up to the tower apartment, and she nibbles with delicate knuckles on a thickly impressive door. My uncle isn't well. I don't want to wake him if he's sleeping. Uh, do you have a key? Yes, as a matter of fact, I do. Well, then let's use it, huh? Yes, yes, I shall. Inside, you get a back view of an old guy snoozing by an open window. You can't see his hands. They're in his lap. Angela taps you, and you tiptoe behind her into another room. She sits down and crosses her legs, and you've got trouble keeping your eyes away from her knees. But you manage. Well, do you have it? Uh, 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 I beg your pardon? Did you bring it? Bring what? The earring. Earring? What? Oh, where's my handbag? Handbag. Well, here it is. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Here. Read this. 
A clipping which I tore from the personal column of the Times. Please read it. Out loud. All right. Let me see now. Uh, if the lady who lost an earring at the art student's ball Friday evening will meet me in front of Fitch's department store Tuesday afternoon between 2 and 2.30, I shall be happy to return... <laughs> now, do you understand? Yes, yes, I do, and I'm, I'm terribly sorry. Sorry? But why? You... Look, look, Miss Wentworth, I didn't insert that ad. You didn't, but... No, no, you... I just happened to be there, and, well, you were there, and, well, a conversation sprang up. Oh. <laughs> it's funny. Yes. Really funny. But I do think you ought to go now. She sort of starts you on your way, but on your way, you get another look at the old man, and suddenly you don't like it. He hasn't moved, and there's a white waxiness behind his ears. And you go near. What? What is it, Mr. Chambers? He's dead. <sighs> she passes out in a faint, and you let her lie. You go around to the front of the old man, and you take a look. He's got a gun in his hand and two bullet holes in his stomach. You're working at your trade now, and you work quickly and carefully. The room's in perfect order, absolutely no sign of a tussle. The old man's still warm, hasn't been dead an hour. Then, toward the middle of the room, you see it. A round red spot that sort of blends in with the russet color of the rug. You touch it. It's blood. Then you go back to the old man, you dig around in his pockets. You come up with a beautiful triangular emerald earring. And just then, Angela Wentworth starts stirring. Oh... Oh. Easy, easy does it, Miss Wentworth. Come on, come on. Let me help you up. Oh. There you are. Oh, my uncle. Uncle. He's dead. He appears to have shot himself. Oh, no. Now, look, look, look. Let's go back to the other room, huh? All right. Come on. Now, there, will you sit down? Thank you. I'll use the phone. Operator. Police headquarters. Emergency. I only left him perhaps an hour ago. Hello? Hello, I want to report a death. That's right, a death. 598 Madison Avenue, a hotel, the Tower Apartment. All right, now, Miss Wentworth, there's nothing we can do but wait for the police. Oh, it, it's terrible, terrible. Look, I uh, found this, this earring in your uncle's pocket. Oh, thank you. It's the mate of the one I lost. Well, what was it doing in your uncle's pocket? That clipping. The person said they would return the lost one if I could identify it. So I brought the mate here to Uncle. Left it with him and intended to bring the finder here with me. Show him the mate to the earring, which would be perfect identification. Is it valuable? Each earring is insured for $20,000, but... Oh, look, Mr. Chambers, may I... May I please call somebody? Well, sure. Who do you want to call? Oliver Hartford. My brother-in-law. He's married to my sister. He came here with my uncle. They... Live way up in New Hampshire, all of them. Mm, what about you? Well, I live here in the city. May I call Oliver? All right, where's he staying? Right here, this hotel. One of the downstairs suites. Well, let's call him. Would you connect me with Mr. Hartford, please? There you are. Oh, thank you. Hello, Ollie. Come up to Uncle's suite. Quickly, please. <laughs> The guy shows. Oliver Hartford, big, young, and brawny. 
He sort of takes over in the comfort department for a sister-in-law. And presently, there's an onslaught of cops, medical examiner, fingerprint men, and the works. And boss man of the works, your good friend, Detective Lieutenant Louis Parker. Looking a little harassed today, but working with his usual competence. And then, after they're all done, and the medical examiner has made his report, and the body has been taken out, Parker takes you aside, and you fill him in on your end of the deal. Well, they got me working today. I got three unfinished cases, now this thing pops up. Uh, it never rains. Medical examiner says suicide. The girls identified the gun as the old man's. Emmy says time of death, two o'clock. Door was locked. Who else had keys? Nobody but the old man. He lent his to the girl, and she was with you when the thing happened. Check. Suicide, period. Boy, I am busy today. Now, let me go in and talk to those two, the relatives, and then I'll beat it out of here. Sure, Louis. Let me go talk to them. All right, then, Miss uh, Wentworth, Mr. Hartford. Oh, by the way, Mr. Chambers here is a private detective. and One of the best. Uh-huh. So, just in case either of you are not satisfied with the way the police may be handling Oh, well, we're, we're perfectly satisfied, Lieutenant, of course. All right, then. Let's get some of the facts out of the way. Hmm? Name of deceased, Robert Wentworth, the rich man, ex-oil man, worth many millions, retired widower. Hmm? Yes, his only two living relatives, his nieces. Uh, Miss Angela Wentworth, of course, my wife, Marie Wentworth Hartford. Where's your wife now? Why, uh, she's at home up in New Hampshire. See, I came in with Uncle Robert last week. Okay, Medical examiner says suicide, and every external item points to suicide. Time, two o'clock. Now, where were you at two o'clock, Mr. Hutt? In my room, napping. And you, Miss Wentworth? With Mr. Chambers, on Fifth Avenue, near Fitch's department. I'll corroborate that, Lieutenant. Thank you, Mr. Chambers. You're very welcome, Mr. Yeah, all all right, all right. Sorry, lost my head. Now, this suicide thing, would Mr. Wentworth be disposed to suicide? Oh, Oh, yes. yes. One at a time, now, please, one at a time, huh? You, Miss Wentworth. Well, Lieutenant, my uncle was very ill. He was here for an operation. The doctors gave him very little chance. Did he know that he had this very little chance? Yes, of course he knew it. Better than any of us. Yeah. Seems to be clean cut. No loose ends. Mr. Hartford. Yes, sir. Would you accompany me downtown? I need a member of the family. Many little items of routine. Why, yes, of course, Lieutenant, of course. And so you're alone again with Miss Angela Wentworth. You take her home to a cute little apartment on East 34th, and there... Thank you, Mr. Chambers. You've been very kind. Not at all. Uh, look, Angela, ours was a, well, a chance acquaintance, but there's no reason why it should end there. No, no reason at all. I... I like you very much, Mr. Chambers. And, uh... I like you. Look, a lawyer was mentioned back there. Was that the only person your uncle would want to see to arrange his affairs? No, there was another, and much more important. Algernon Sacco, his business advisor. Sacco? He has an office down on Pine Street. Bye now, Miss Wentworth. I'll be in touch with you. Yes, please do. Now, here's a brand new wrinkle. Algernon Sacco. Crooked as a country road. A big operator and a shrewd one. You tangled with him a few times, but that was way back before he acquired respectability and a few rich clients. An old cackle voice guy, but smart as a brand new whip. So you're down on Pine Street, old stone and steel. No pines. No pines at all. Yeah. 
Who do you wish to see? Mr. Sacco, and tell him I'm in a hurry. Nobody's in a hurry with Mr. Sacco. I'm in a hurry. Use that little intercom of yours and tell him Peter Chambers. Just a minute. Yes? Mr. Sacco, a gentleman here to see you. Says he's in a hurry. A Mr. Peter Chambers. Oh, who, who did you say? A Mr. Peter Chambers. Oh, of course. Send him in at once. See what I mean, baby? I'm a real VIP. That's all you right, Mr. Chambers. Well, 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 good to see you again, my dear private operator. Now, boy, I shall not mince as they say words. To the point, then, Peter. Robert Wentworth. Oh, excellent client. Loaded? $20 million. Oh, boy, are you going to be sad to hear this. Yeah, what? He's dead. Dead? You're kidding. I never kid when it has to do with death. Now, look, I want the rundown on this guy, and I want it fast, and I want it all. Do you have a will? Uh, yes. Well, come on, come on, let's hear it. The, the will left his entire estate to his two nieces, Angela and Marie. Wow. Ten million dollars each, huh? And who was the executor to this will? Me, Algernon Sacco. Pretty piece of change involved for uh, Algernon Sacco. Yes, now that he's dead, before he changed his will, I'll earn that pretty piece of change. Fees and commissions, it bounces up, it bounces up. Now, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, yeah. wait a minute. You just said before he changed his will. Did he have any intention of changing it? Well, uh, well, I... Come on, look, pal, there might be a motive here for murder. Oh, you mean I... It's got its angles, but if it gets to the cops, it gets to the newspapers, and all your background gets washed up. Now, you can't use that algae, not the new, respectable Algernon Sacco. Uh, but, uh, what do you want to know? Well, you know what the man says all the time. The facts, pal, the facts. Well, he came in late last week and discussed changing his will. He felt that his nieces were well provided for, and he was making up his mind to leave his entire estate to medical research. Did you like that? No, I did not. So what did you do about uh, it? So I got in touch with Oliver Hartford. After all, a change of will meant a loss to Mr. Hartford's wife of $10 million. And when your wife loses, you lose. What did his Hartford do about it? I don't know. But he was going to tackle the old man and see if he couldn't talk him out of it. Okay, Algy, thanks for the information. Keep respectable, uh, pal. Peter Chambers! You're working now. You're beginning to smell what you suspected. Murder. You get up to Angela Wentworth's place and she opens the door for you and your eyes pop. She's wearing blue silk lounging pajamas and she has a pony of brandy in her hand. Blue silk lounging pajamas. They were born to be worn by Angela Wentworth. It's good to see you again, Mr. Chambers. Likewise, Miss Wentworth. You, uh... Seem to be rolling with the blow. Well, I've been thinking about it. Uncle Robert was an old man and very ill. Perhaps it was for the best. Look, at the ball you attended when you lost your earring... Would you like some brandy, Mr. James? Well, I'll take a rain check on it. Now, that ball you attended, who went with you? I mean, uh, who was your escort? Oliver, my brother-in-law. Uncle insisted. I think I had one cocktail too many at that ball. That earring was gone before I realized it. Mr. Chambers? Mr. Chambers, where are you going? You're going to pay a social call on Oliver Hartford. You knock on his door and he opens and you pull your way in. Hey, what's the meaning of this? What's the matter with nothing, you? Nothing, nothing. Just got no manners, I suppose. Get out of here. I'm going, but you're coming with me. I'm going with you? Where? Downtown, police headquarters. And just what are we going to do there? 
I'm going to accuse you of murder. Oliver swings, you duck. You swing, Oliver ducks. But he doesn't duck good enough. He goes down and out. And as you finish the pivot of your swing, there stands Detective Lieutenant Louis Parker in the doorway. Real nice form, Pete. You're starting to get your shoulders into it. Hmm? Thanks, Louis. Incidentally, uh, apologies to the private eye. From whom? From me. I'm not busy anymore. So? So the old guy was murdered. He wasn't a suicide. That's my Louis. Got finished with the press of business. Had time to think. If there's a spot of blood in the middle of the room, how come we find the old guy in the rocker by the window? Exactly. He was shot in the middle of the room. Yeah. Then he was pulled over to the rocker. The gun was wiped and put into his hand. Furthermore, downtown, a paraffin test shows the old guy never fired the gun, and that clinches it. That figures. Where have you been till now, Louis? Backtracking after you. Saw that Sacco guy, saw that Angela, read that newspaper clipping. Mm. He took it to the ball, Oliver did. Sure, and he stuffs her full of cocktails and clips the earrings. And sticks that phony ad in the paper. So he can get her out of the way. Mm. Then he goes in to see the old man, bumps him with his own gun, fixes it for suicide, and leaves. And the door locks on the clicker, so we got a, a locked room in the bargain. Well, what's our next step, Louis? Well, we take this bum downtown. Let's get him back to consciousness. We take him downtown and see how he acts under a bright white light. Oliver Hartford at headquarters gets closeted with Detective Parker and a host of excellent interrogators. You wait across the street in Luke McCool's Lonesome Bar and Grill. You sip on a stinger and you ponder. It figures for about two hours. Brother, when cops know you done it, and you're an amateur, you're a blustering wise guy for part of the way, but pretty soon you break wide open. Unless you're very smart or very stubborn. And you've got a feeling that Oliver may be very stubborn. So you're off and running and you're making tracks again for Angela Wentworth's place. Come in, come in, Mr. Chambers. You're becoming quite a regular visitor. And I like it. You like it, too, but you don't have the time. I offer brandy. Again, Mr. Chambers. And again, I've got to refuse. Double rain check this time, Miss Wentworth. Now, look, look. That earring, may I have it? The earring? Angela, look, may I call you Angela? Oh, please do. Well, you can trust me with it. I had it once and I give it back to you, remember? Yes, but why... Please, please, let me have it and I'll return it to you. And when I do, I've got a hunch I'll have the time for, um, uh, perhaps a brandy or two. All right, Mr. Chambers. Here it is. And so you're back in Luke McCool's lonesome bar and grill across the street from headquarters, and you're trifling with stingers again when Parker shows up. And he hangs a face in front of you that's longer than a lover's kiss. Pete, boy, we've got us a tartar. Meaning who? Meaning that Oliver Hartford. Tough boy. That's tough. The guy killed Uncle Robert. So that his wife could pick up ten million solid simoleons. I know. There's no one else, Louie. No one else could possibly have done it. Nobody with motive. You're so right, boy. Angela, she was with you. Sacco, no question, he was in his office all day. The other niece, Oliver's wife, we've checked it. She's in New Hampshire. No question, we've got the right pigeon. We've got him right up to the breaking point, but he won't break. Pete, all I need is a gimmick, one little thing to shove him over. And I've got it for you, Lieutenant. Got what? A crowbar that'll topple the rock. Only this crowbar is green, it's shiny. 
and it's worth 20,000 bucks. Here. Look. Hey, that's a beauty. Where'd you get that? Out of Oliver Hartford's suite. No. Yep. So, Louis, my lad, take this earring and shove it down his throat. Gimme, pal. So you're alone once more, and you've got your fingers crossed. Psychologically, it fits. But if it blows up, you're going to be in the middle of the explosion. If it blows, it'll blow all over you. But 20 minutes later, Park is back and he's beaming. He returns the earring and he claps you on the back. And a clap on the back from Parker is like a jolt of the jaw from Marciano. Got him, got him, got him good. Full confession, the works broke him down completely. Oh, and now he's up the other alley pleading for leniency. Uh, you tricked him, Louis. I tricked him? No, not me. That's my pride. I'm a straight cop. I tricked nobody. I know, I know. So I had to trick you into tricking him. Well, what are you talking about? The emerald earring. What about it? It's the wrong one. It's the one out of Uncle's pocket. The mate to the one that disappeared. The wrong one? Well, then where's the right one? Well, it must be where uh, psychologically it ought to be. Now, you had the guy on the brink, Louie. There wasn't time to go looking for the right one, so I used the wrong earring for the right purpose, and it worked. So now... <laughs> Let's go find the right one. You accompany Parker and five of his best boys to Oliver's suite, and they give it a professional going over, and they come up with the earring. Inside a cake of soap. <laughs> Amateurs are all alike. They think they've discovered a brand new hiding place just because they thought of it. Parker gives them to you, the pair. Go ahead, kiddo. You return them. You may as well get something out of this. Glory, at least. And so the private eye in proper tradition is back where he belongs, in the beautiful lady's apartment. He partakes of a bit of brandy, and then he presents her with a complete set of emerald earrings. Oh, Mr. Chambers, I, I don't know how to thank you. Think nothing of it, ma'am? A fee. Would you perhaps accept a fee? No, thanks. Nothing as mundane as a fee. But I... I just don't know how to thank you. Well, you think about it, Angela. Just sip your brandy and think. Come here, Mr. Chambers. Oh, I'm coming, ma'am. I think I know what you mean. Something like this? Mmm. Oh, Mr. Chambers. And there you've had crime and Peter Chambers. Dane Clark was starred as Peter Chambers. Crime and Peter Chambers transcribed was created and written by Henry Kane. Others in the cast were Bill Zuckert, heard as Lieutenant Parker, Joyce Gordon as Angela, and Bernard Grant as Oliver. It was directed by Fred Way. And this is Fred Collins inviting you to tune in next week, same time, same station, for Dane Clark in Crime and Peter Chambers.
And that's Crime and Peter Chambers from June 1st, 1954, with a Robert Wentworth case starring Dane Clark, as heard on NBC. Hope you enjoyed that. Let's take a quick break, then it's more on the WGN Radio Theater. Hey, Lisa, if you or anyone listening wants five classic radio shows absolutely free, now these are full-length half-hour shows digitally remastered, they're available at our website, 100radioshows.com. That's the number 100radioshows.com. If you go to the top of that website, there is a place for you to put your email address. Put your email in there, hit send, and you will receive five classic radio shows. What are the five shows? That would be Jack Benny, Fibber McGee and Molly, Gunsmoke, Suspense, and Richard Diamond, Private Detective. Right. No strings attached. Absolutely free. Get them via digital download. When you are at the website, you'll notice that there are hundreds of additional classic radio shows available for purchase. If you do decide to purchase any of those shows, make sure that you use the promo code radio. That's the secret word. If you put in the promo code radio, you save 70%. So that's a great savings, great classic radio shows. Check out the website 100radioshows.com. Yep. And that uh, promo code goes in at checkout and you'll notice that the, uh, in your like shopping cart, the price drops by 70% by plugging in the promo code radio at checkout. All right. In our next hour, we'll tune in to my mom's favorite radio show, Dr. Kildare. She has a tie. Dr. Kildare and Life with Luigi are, for, are her two favorite shows. In our next hour, it's the story of Dr. Kildare. Then we'll hear part one of You Bet Your Life starring Groucho Marx that's coming your way right after the news. Welcome back to the WGN Radio Theater. Lisa and I are here every Saturday night, 10 p.m. until 3 o'clock in the morning, playing eight classic radio shows each and every week. All your favorites, including Suspense and Jack Benny and The Shadow and The Whistler, they're all here. Make sure you tell a friend and thank you very much for listening. On this hour, it's the story of Dr. Kildare, starring Lou Ayers and Lionel Barrymore. We'll also hear part one, the first half, of You Bet Your Life, starring Groucho Marx. Now, all of these classic radio shows are in my library, 100,000 shows directly from the master recording, and each and every month I hand-choose 10 shows, I, very special shows. Mike Costella digitally remasters them. I write very copious liner notes about those 10 shows, and we send them to members of the Classic Radio Club. Now, you can get those shows sent to your email each and every month, all 10 shows, or you can get them sent to you on five CDs in a collector case. Now, a very nice presentation. There's pictures of the radio stars on the outer case. It's really, really nice. And you can learn all about joining the Classic Radio Club at ClassicRadioClub.com. The first month, it's only a dollar to try it out. So go to ClassicRadioClub.com. We hope you'll try it. And you know what? You can cancel it anytime, and you'll never get a duplicate Classic Radio show. ClassicRadioClub.com. All right, when we come back, it's the story of Dr. Kildare. Stick around.
Hour three of the WGN Radio Theater will be here till three o'clock in the morning. In this hour, it's the story of Dr. Kildare. Now, this was a medical drama, Lisa, based on the characters made popular by a series of MGM medical melodramas. Stories revolved around the patients and staff at Blair Memorial Hospital. Lou Ayers took the lead role of young, handsome, and skilled surgeon Dr. Kildare, and character actor Lionel Barrymore played crusty mentor figure Dr. Gillespie. It was syndicated in 1950, and it provided an effective precursor to the Dr. Kildare television series seen in the early 1960s. That starred Richard Chamberlain as Dr. Kildare and Raymond Massey as Dr. Gillespie. We have a 1950 radio broadcast for you now called Angela Carew. This stars Lou Ayers and Lionel Barrymore. Let's go back to June 1st, 1950. Uninterrupted now. Here's the story of Dr. Kildare. The story of Dr. Kildare. Whatsoever house I enter, there will I go for the benefit of the sick. Whatsoever things I see or hear concerning the life of men... I will keep silence thereon, counting such things to be held as sacred trusts. I will exercise my art solely for the cure. The story of Dr. Kildare, starring Lou Ayers and Lionel Barrymore. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer brought you those famous motion pictures. Now this exciting, heartwarming series is heard on radio. In just a moment, the story of Dr. Kildare. And now, the story of Dr. Kildare, starring Lou Ayers as Dr. Kildare and Lionel Barrymore as Dr. Gillespie. Blair General Hospital, one of the great citadels of American medicine. A clump of gray-white buildings planted deep in the heart of New York, the nerve center of medical progress, where great minds and skilled hands wage man's everlasting battle against death and disease. Blair General Hospital, where life begins, where life ends, where life goes on. Come in. Oh, Dr. Gillespie. Say, did you get a summons up to Dr. Carew's office? I did, just now. Yeah, I did, too. What do you suppose the old goat wants this time? (laughs) I don't know. Oh, probably someone on the board of directors has a tummy ache or an acute case of hypochondria. You know, he gets to be more and more of a nuisance every day. All the Carews in the world are nuisances, aren't they? Yes, and unfortunately, the world is full of them. Well, shall we go up together? I'm ready. It's a doggone shame, you know, that we haven't got an apple to take along and put on his desk. Why, Dr. Gillespie, you go wash your mouth out with soap. Why? Well, you use the word apple. You know what they say, an apple a day does. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Keeps the doctor away. Isn't that a little corny, oh, Kildare? I suppose it is. But it comes out in the best of us at times. Come on, let's report to headquarters. Good morning, teacher. <laughs> You two dear fellows are never satisfied unless you have your little joke, are you? (laughs) Yeah. I don't think he liked our greeting, Dr. Gillespie. Oh, yes, I did. There's nothing I like better than to see high spirits in my associates. As long as they don't become high with spirits, eh, Dr. Carew? Uh, 
Talk about corn. <laughs> I say, that's, that's really good. As long as they don't become high with spirits. Get it, Gildare? No, I don't. He means as long as they don't become intoxicated. He does? Of course he does. Uh, don't you, Dr. Gillespie? Oh, I'm sorry I ever opened my big mouth. High spirits. I must remember to tell my wife that. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, well, <clears throat> we've had our bit of fun. Now to more serious business. Boys, I have a problem. Yes, yes Dr. Dr. Crew? I need help, and I know I can count on you. Can't I? To the death. Ditto. There we are. There's the spirit that has made Blair General Hospital what it is today. Gentlemen, I salute you. Gildare, tension. What's your problem, Dr. Carew? My wife's too fat. What did you say? I said my wife's too fat. Well, you don't need a diagnostician and a surgeon for that. Oh, yes, I do. All right, all right, all right. As a diagnostician, I can tell you right now that the reason she's too fat is because she overeats. And as a diagnostician, I can also inform you that it's impossible for a surgeon to operate as a cure for obesity. That correct, Dr. Kildare? Correct, Dr. Gillespie. Now, 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 don't be hasty. Gentlemen, I know that the proposed new polio hospital wing is dear to both your hearts. Yes, but what does that have to do with Mrs. Carew's weight? Everything, dear fellow, everything. I am planning a special benefit performance to be held in two months for the wing. A, a show, you know, singing, dancing, and famous personalities. All that. Well, I still... I Angela don't... used to be quite a famous dancer. She wants to dance again. And I want her to dance again. Lots of people come to see her dance again. Who remembered her from the days when she was the toast of New York. Mm. Angela must be her old, slim, svelte, enchanting, adorable self. And she must dance her way once more into the hearts of this great, cold city. And warm it. As she used to. Mm. A very pretty sentiment, and I appreciate your feeling, Dr. Carew, but what can we do about it? For the sake of the polio wing, get 20 pounds off Angela. Well, I've never handled a case just like this. I... No, neither have I. I knew you'd help me out. Now then, Angela will be at the hospital in an hour. I'll send her down to see you. Dear Dr. Kildare and Dr. Gillespie, you sweet old grumpy you. Oh, I believe I'm going to kiss you. Oh, now, Angela, it isn't necessary to go to any such lengths as that, you know. <laughs> oh, what a precious old grumpy. Well, Bumpy tells me that you two are going to make me thin. Bumpy? Dr. Carew. Oh, I didn't know. <laughs> well, we're going to do our best. Uh, Let's see, Mrs. Carew, you weigh, according to our scale now, 150 pounds. Don't say it so loud. It's embarrassing. We'll have to put you through a thorough physical examination, of course, before you can start your diet. We'll want you to come in early in the morning for that. You'll have a basal metabolism test, and you'll find your instructions written on this piece of paper. Well, of course, I don't know what's gotten into Bumpy. He used to say he didn't like girls that were like string beans. Well, 20 pounds from now, you're still going to be a long way from being a string bean, Angela. Well, I guess I'd better go out on a real binge this afternoon. Binge? What kind of binge? Maybe a double banana split binge. That will make just that much more you'll have to take off. Oh, I'll worry about that tomorrow. See you both in the morning. Mm, don't forget the paper with your instructions. Oh, yes, that's right. Well, toodaloo. Well, toodaloo. Oh, you sweet, precious, grumpy you. <laughs> Goodbye. Say, you know, I may throw up. <laughs> 
I don't know. I certainly didn't study medicine and put in all that work to spend my time taking fat off people who just shovel it back onto themselves as fast as they can eat. That's right. Sure it is. That's right. It isn't very smart when you stop to think about it. By carrying a lot of extra weight around, Angela is weakening her strength and shortening her life and spoiling her looks. Think we can get her to diet? Well, we better we'll start looking for another hospital. Come in! Well, what two shining, happy faces I see. Molly, have you any favorite way of taking off weight? Oh, sure. I bang this against the wall like this. <clears throat> Does it work? Well, I think so. Oh, did you two draw Mrs. Carew? Yeah, we certainly did. <laughs> I just heard Dr. Carew giving a statement to the papers that she was to stage a comeback and for the sake of dear Blair General Hospital would redo her famous dance of the willow. Yeah. Oh, I'd better get back to work. Mm. Good afternoon, Dr. Carew. Uh, uh, yes. Oh, here are my great doctors. Dr. Brownlee, may I present Dr. Gillespie and Dr. Kildare? How to do, uh, Dr. Brownlee is a diet specialist from London. I just uh, told him how you propose to take 20 pounds off Mrs. Carew by your unique and original scientific methods. And he has asked permission to observe you at work, which I have given him. He's terribly grateful. Oh, quite. Well, we're glad to have you, Doctor, but we haven't actually started on the case yet. We're beginning our examinations of Mrs. Carew in the morning. Quite. Well, I know you'll enjoy having this learned colleague with you. I'll just leave you boys to get acquainted. Quite. Uh, how long have you been in New York, Dr. Brownlee? One week. You uh, enjoying yourself? Quite. Uh, uh, where have you been since you arrived? No place. Oh, oh well, would you like to look around the town? No, thank you. Uh, yes, I'd be... I imagine you miss England. Quite. Uh, what time is it? My word, five o'clock already. It's time for my visit. I'm sorry to tear myself away, but you understand how it is, Dr. Brownlee. Uh, Dr. Kildare will entertain you. Oh, I'm so sorry, but I have an emergency on the third floor, Dr. Gillespie. I know Dr. Brownlee will excuse me. Yes. Nice to have met you, Doctor. I'll wait. Well, I may be some time. Time is of no essence. Yeah. Uh, goodbye, Dr. Brownlee. Dr. Gillespie will see you later. Quite. Yeah. Why did he have to leave him in my office? Why couldn't it have been in yours? Fortune's a war, old boy. Yeah, quite. Mm. Well, I'll spend the night in research on diets. You spend it with Dr. Brownlee. Yeah. I'll see you in the morning with Mrs. Carew when she comes in for her examination. Oh, splash. Now, Mrs. Carew, we've conducted a most thorough examination. We find you in excellent physical condition. Correct, Dr. Gillespie? Correct. Quite. Uh, thank you, Dr. Brownlee. Uh, now there's nothing to stop you from going on a diet immediately. Yes, I was afraid there wouldn't be. I have a diet here for you. You will note that for breakfast you may have half a grapefruit, no sugar, one piece of dry toast, black coffee. I don't like grapefruit. I hate dry toast and I loathe black coffee. Courage, Angela. Courage. Courage. Yes, courage. Now for lunch you may have a delicious salad of lettuce, mineral oil dressing, or lemon juice. For dinner, coddled eggs. With a plain green vegetable. No corn, peas, lima beans, or potatoes. No, none at all. None. Uh, 
you'll find a different menu there for each day of the week. Now, you mustn't deviate from it. Well, I'll, I'll try. Uh, now then, there's also a course of exercise. First, every morning, I want you to bend down and touch your toes. Fifty times. Fifty times? Yes, yes, very easy, like this. Uh, hmm. <laughs> try harder, Kildare. You can make it now. Atta <laughs> boy. Bravo! Thank you so much. Well, uh, you get the idea, Angela. Yes, I know what you mean, all right, but I don't know if I can make it. Well, try. Open the window and do your exercises with vigor. Remember the Nordic maidens. Be one of those. Charming girls. Why, Brownie, who'd ever think that you'd notice anything like that? Then, put your hands on your hips and swing as far to the left and as far to the right as you can. Do that uh, 20 times. I'm getting tired just thinking about it. Now, this is Monday. I want you to come in on Thursday and be weighed. And then I'll give you a diet for the next few days and some more exercises. You should notice very rapid results. Yeah, and we'll all cheer you from the sidelines. Excelsior and all that sort of thing. Yes, uh, goodbye. I'll see you on Thursday. Toodaloo. Yeah, goodbye, Angela. Good luck. Charles. Dr. Kildare... I sent for you because I have a pain in my back, and I thought you might be able to help me. Does it seem to be muscular? Oh, yes, it's muscular, all right. It's those confounded exercises you gave Angela. What do they have to do with you? She makes me do them with her. She says it's more chummy that way, and I'm on her diet, too. Oh? Well, what kind of results are you getting? Lost four pounds. Really? Yes, a pound a day. Mm. And I don't mind telling you that it's ruining my disposition. I, I, I can't seem to radiate like I could a week ago. The arch in my instep is gone. I don't like people. Hmm. I'll bet you don't. But I didn't prescribe the diet for you. I don't recommend it for you. You're thin enough as it is. Angela says I shouldn't ask anyone to do a thing I wouldn't do myself. Well, at any rate, I shall certainly look forward to weighing Mrs. Carew. <laughs> Mrs. Carew... Let me take another look at that scale. Well, it, 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 it couldn't say 153. That would mean I'd gain three pounds. Yes. Well, that's what it says, all right. Did you stay oh. on your diet? I certainly did. I had a horrid old chunk of lettuce with lemon juice on it for lunch. And last night I had boiled codfish and raw tomatoes. And yesterday noon I had a raw vegetable salad and then some black... Then how could you possibly gain three pounds when you're... Your diet's husband... no good. It's no good at all. You don't know a thing about diets. Oh, now, that's not true. Well, if you do, why haven't I lost weight? I don't know. But let me tell you something, Mrs. Carew. I'm going to find out. <laughs> I'll have a double chocolate malt, please. Coming right up, ma'am. Why, Mrs. Carew, having oh. a cup of black coffee? Kildare, what are you doing here? Oh, just happened to be going in the same direction as you. Have you been following me? I've been following you for three days. When you've gone into a restaurant, I've been outside looking in to see what you ordered. And if I couldn't do it myself, I had someone else How dare you spy on me? I had to find out. Now I have the record right here. Yesterday? Yesterday, I had half a head of lettuce with lemon juice for lunch. And That's then I... right, you did, at Brown's. But at 3.55, you had a double chocolate ice cream soda. Well, I... I dieted at lunch, didn't I? And this morning at 10 o'clock, you stopped for a hot chocolate. And now Here's you're having... double malted, lady. If you don't mind, the lady will have black coffee. I'll have the chalk malt. Mrs. Carew, 
You've been cheating. But I've dieted at mealtimes. I've never done that before. You can't just diet at mealtimes. You've got to diet all day long. Now, look here. I'm not trying to be mean and spy on you. I have a job to do, and I've got to do it. My job is to get 20 pounds off of you, but I can't do it without your help and cooperation. 23 pounds. That's right. Oh. 23 pounds. Yes. Here's your black coffee, lady. Thanks. Oh, there, now. You're going to get your coffee all full of tears. You mustn't feel bad just because... Excuse me, Dr. Kildare. I don't care for any coffee. Oh. Some people would take candy from a baby. Yes, and some people would give it to one. That's the story. That's it. In one week, Dr. Carew has lost six pounds. His mm. wife has gained four. Shocking. Exactly the way I feel, Dr. Brownlee. Furthermore, Carew has caught a bad cold, and he's blaming that on us, too. He says we've undermined his physical condition. Well, he shouldn't be dieting. He knows that. Well, I suppose we might as well throw in the towel. Yes, I'm afraid so. Might I make a suggestion? Of course. Perhaps Mrs. Carew needs an incentive. What kind of an incentive? Well, I've always found a mink coat to be quite tempting. Say, you may have something there. Suppose, suppose Dr. Carew were to promise Mrs. Carew a mink coat in exchange for that extra poundage. Ah, that old skin flint. He'd no more... Well, he might be tricked into it. Kildare, would you be guilty of stooping to a low trick to get this weight off Mrs. Carew and getting a mink coat? Out of Bumpy? I would. So would I. I'm with you, mate. Well, then. Gather round, mates. Gather round. Let's hatch a plot. We return to the story of Dr. Kildare in just a moment. scale say, Dr. Kildare? You can see it as well as I can, Angela. 155. Mm -hmm. Angela, oh. I want to talk to you. Sit no, down. I... Sit down. Do you know what I heard your husband say the other day? No. I heard him say it would be worth a mink coat to him to have you take off that weight. A mink coat? Bumpy said a mink coat. That's exactly what he said. Why? Good morning, Angela, my dear. Oh, morning. Dr. Gillespie, Dr. Kildare says he heard Bumpy say it's worth a mink coat to him to have me lose that weight. That's exactly what he said. Wasn't it, Dr. Brownlee? Quite. Well, I'm certainly willing to starve for a mink coat. Well, well, and what do the scales say? Uh, out with it. What do the scales say? Oh, Bumpy, darling, I'm going to starve myself to ribbons. Any girl would go on a diet for a mink coat. 
A mink coat? Yes, Dr. Kildare told me that you said it's worth a mink coat to have me take that weight off. Kildare, I'm shocked. Shocked, astounded, and hurt. No, 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 don't interrupt. Hurt is what I meant. To think that one of my colleagues... Oh, you mean you didn't say it, Bumpy? Ah, of course he said it. I heard him myself. And so did Brownie. Didn't you, Brownie? Quite, Gilzer. And Dr. Carew is going to be so proud of you when he sees you dance, Angela. Uh, very well. Very well. I know how to play the sport when I'm cornered. Yeah. Angela will have her coat if she takes off the weight. Oh, Bumpy, you're the most wonderful man in the world. But from now on, someone else will have to eat with her and exercise with her. Kildare, I want you to exercise with Angela. And Dr. Gillespie, I want you to eat with her. Yeah. And Dr. Brownlee, you may do either. Both. Well, we'll do it, won't we, mates? We've put our shoulder to the wheel, and we'll heave ho. Kind of heroic, isn't it? Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to bed. Uh, the lady and I will each have one piece of dry toast, one half of grapefruit, and black coffee. And I. Sorry, Brownie, I'm sorry. I forgot you for the moment. Waiter... We who are about to diet salute you. I, I'm tired. Oh, cheer up. Oh. We've only 20 uh, more blocks to go. Where, where's Brownie? Oh, he's sitting uh, back on the curb there. Uh, He'll catch up before uh, we're at the hospital. Uh, Come on, Angela. Uh, Squad's right. Uh, Three coddled eggs and three raw tomatoes. Yes, sir. Will that be all, sir? Angela? That's all. Brownie? That's all. We have some fresh and very special banana cream pie. Would you mind doing me the extreme favor of dropping dead, old chap? Not for that ball, Angela. You can make it. That's it. My tennis is improving at any rate. So's your form, old girl. So's your form. Stalk of celery, a broiled lamb, chopped plain, boiled spinach. All right, bend down, touch your toes. One, two, one. Dr. Kildare, look at the scale, look at it. 118, I weigh 118 pounds. Like it. Angela, without a doubt, that is the most beautiful mink coat I've ever seen. It's really ripping, old girl. It really is. Cost fortune. Angela, what are you doing? Don't sit down in that coat. You're sitting on thousands of dollars. Oh, you know, Bumpy, I'm going to need a whole new wardrobe. You're going to what? Yes. None of my clothes fit anymore. I've got this dress pinned together with safety pins. Well, just pin the rest of them together with safety pins. Oh, but Bumpy made me take the weight off, and after all, he wants me to look attractive. All right, Angela, all right. But just a very few simple things. Remember, I'm only the poor, struggling head of a hospital. Oh, I'll remember, Bumpy. And thank you, Dr. Kildare. I'll always be grateful for what you've done for me. Oh, I didn't do anything except perhaps function as your, your conscience and as your coach. You did it yourself. Now, if you're careful, you'll be able to keep the weight off. And I know you're going to feel a lot better. I'll keep it off. Well, I, I have to run. I have a rehearsal with the orchestra for my dance, and I want you to know I'm wearing the same costume I wore the night Bumpy asked me to marry him. Angela, that dress is much too low. Oh, I... you didn't say that then, Bumpy. 
Well, I, I, I wasn't married to you then. <laughs> all right, darling, I'll fix it. See you all later. Goodbye, Dr. Gillespie, you sweet old grumpy you. Yeah. Chulu, Angela. Bye, Bronnie. Hip, hip. It really looks kind of wonderful, doesn't she? She does indeed. I'm well pleased, well pleased indeed. Dr. Brownlee, you'll have a fine report to take back to England on our medical methods in this country, won't you? Quite. Kildare, Gillespie, you both look a little run down to me. You'd better take a tonic. Well, I must away to my office to... Uh, good day, gentlemen. Good day. Bumpy. Say, if you two intend to specialize in diets, I'd like to take off a pound or two. Nah, not on your life. We're finished, Molly. Once around the course is about all any of us could take. No, quite. You know, on the whole, the process was inclined to be rather exhausting. I suggest we all three take a tonic and retire to our beds. Quite. Quite. Well, if things get hard up in the hospital, you could always open a charm school. Kildare and Gillespie's Glamour School. Thanks, Molly. I'm going to stick to medicine. Hello. Exclamation mark, don't you know? Yeah, on the whole, it's been a satisfactory operation. Yes, we made a new woman of Angela, we helped the hospital wing, and we made Dr. Carew spend some money. Yes, on the whole, it has been very satisfactory. Quite. <laughs> In just a moment, we will return to the story of Dr. Kildare. Once again, the story of Dr. Kildare, starring Lou Ayers as Dr. Kildare and Lionel Barrymore as Dr. Gillespie. Waiter, I want a thick cream of chicken soup to start with. Then I want lobster a la Newburgh, mashed potatoes and gravy with a side order of French fries, some corn on the cob with lots of butter and hot rolls. And for dessert, I want ice cream with fudge sauce on apple pie. There. Dr. Gillespie, do you think that... After all, the way you've been eating is... That's what I want, and that's what I intend to eat and hang the consequences. And I'll have the same. And me. You know, Brownie, we're going to miss you. I'm sorry you're going home. We're certainly grateful to you for helping us with Angela Carew. It was nothing, old boy. I was glad to help out. Uh, you know, Brownlee, it's been very refreshing to have someone around who doesn't talk all the time. I've had a very pleasant time indeed, and I shall enjoy telling everyone about my two friends, Dr. Gillespie and Dr. Kildare. Mm. And may I consider myself at liberty to repeat the story of Mrs. Carew's diet? Oh, of course, of course, as long as you give yourself credit for the mink coat. Quite. <laughs> You have just heard the story of Dr. Kildare, starring Lou Ayers and Lionel Barrymore. This program was written by Gene Holloway and directed by William P. Russo. 
Original music was composed and conducted by Walter Schumann. Supporting cast included Eleanor Audley, Ted Osborne, Anne Stone, Jay Novello, and Herb Ellis. Dick Joy speaking. And that's the story of Dr. Kildare from June 1st, 1950, a show called Angela Carew, starring Lou Ayers and Lionel Barrymore. Hope you enjoyed that. All right, it's time now for the first half of You Bet Your Life. This was a game show hosted by the great Groucho Marx of the Marx Brothers fame with assistant and announcer George Fenneman at his side. It began on ABC Radio in 1947 and then transitioned to television in 1950. Each show offered a secret word like house, money, hat, etc. Contestants would banter about their life with Groucho and if by chance they said the secret word, they'd win $100. They also won money for answering questions put to them by Groucho, and oftentimes celebrities appeared as contestants. You Bet Your Life enjoyed a very long run, bowing out in 1961. We have a 1955 radio broadcast for you now from February 7th, and uh, the secret word is shoe. Here's part one now of You Bet Your Life. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, the secret word tonight is shoe, S-H-O-E. Shoe enough? (laughs) You bet your life. The more than 3,000 DeSoto Plymouth dealers of America present Groucho Marx in You'll Bet Your Life, the comedy quiz series produced and transcribed from Hollywood. And here he is, the one, the only... Groucho! That's me, Groucho Marx! Well, here I am again with $1,500 for one of our couples tonight. Fenneman, who's face to try for it? Groucho, just before we went on the air, our studio audience selected a young mother and a grandfather. And here they are, Mrs. Sherry Van Pelt and Mr. Frederick Hall. Meet Groucho Marx. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome for the DeSoto Plymouth Dealers. And if you say the secret word, you'll divide $100. It's a common word, something you, you have with you. A young mother and a grandma. A young mother and a grandmother. No, a grandfather, huh? <laughs> Mrs. Sherry Van Pelt. That's a pretty fancy name, isn't it? Uh, How old are you, Sherry? Eighteen. Eighteen, huh? And a mother? Mm -hmm. Land sakes, these new inventions they have today. (laughs) Grandpa, uh, Frederick Hall is your name. Is that that right? Right. Frederick Hall. Where where are you from, uh, Pappy? I was originally from Massachusetts, born in Rockport, about 36 miles north of Boston. Came to Los Angeles in 1910. Well, you're really an old, uh, an old settler, huh? Almost a native son. How, how old are you? Uh? I'm 73. 73? Well, you don't look at it. I thought you were about 60. 
What sort of work do you do, Mr.? Uh... Well, I'm at present practicing law. For 18 years, I was serving the city of Los Angeles as public defender up to 48. Well, the city of Los Angeles can use all the defending you can get. Huh? <laughs> what sort of work does your husband do, uh, Sherry? He's a machine operator for a television antenna manufacturer. You, you say he's a machine operator? Yes. Uh-huh. And how'd you meet him? Oh, we were Was he operating at the time? <laughs> you met in school? Yes. You happily married? Oh, yes. Quite. Well, that's, that's unusual. <laughs> As a young mother, did you have any children? Naturally. <laughs> Naturally, you say, well, I'm glad to hear it. What you, what you meant was that you couldn't be a mother unless you had children, isn't that, isn't that it? Of course. <laughs> well, that's not quite true. I've got children and I'm not a mother. <laughs> how, many, uh, how many whippersnappers do you have? Uh, how many uh, children do you have? One. <laughs> a girl. A girl? Mm-hmm. And how old is this little girl? One year. Did you give up a career to get married? School. You were glad to get out of the classroom, mm-hmm. huh? What was there about your husband that swept you off your feet? Oh, he was... Could you talk a little bit louder? Mm-hmm. You look beautiful, but they'd also like to hear what you're saying. Out there, huh? You'll either have to talk louder or do grinds or something. Huh? <laughs> he, was, he was good looking? Had a nice car. He was real smooth. He was smooth, eh? <laughs> what do you mean by smooth? You mean he hadn't started to shave yet? Grandpa, you're still over there, aren't you? Oh, yes, I'm here. I'm Glad to hear it. It isn't often that old granddad lasts this long. <laughs> well, that's not the point. Let's get back to where we were. Huh? Uh, uh, do you have any children? Uh, Four. Two you... boys, two girls. Uh-huh. Grandchildren? Eight. Mm-hmm. Were any of your grandchildren named after you? No, they were not. Uh, my younger son married a bishop's daughter, and so they took the names of their children out of the Bible. They have Peter and Matthew, Luke and Mark. Well, those are now, nice. the next one may be Hezekiah. I don't know. Might <laughs> be Rachel. How long have you been married, uh, Fred? Forty-six years. Have you been happy all that time? Absolutely. Forty-six years of marriage, two wars, a stock market crash. Yes, we have no bananas and the thing. <laughs> And through it all, I want to ask you one question. I, I want to ask you, why didn't you shoot yourself? <laughs> well, I never was able to get a gun that I thought I could hold. <laughs> now, what are the problems that confront a year-old bride? Oh, mostly that uh, she can't find any friends that are married that are that young. Grandpa, are you still happy? Uh, Tell me. What do you suggest? How can uh, Sherry find some friends her age? Well, I'd suggest perhaps joining some club youthful membership. You mean like the campfire girls? That'd be good. I was a campfire girl until my voice started to change right in the middle of Polly Wally Doodle all the day. (laughs) You belong to any clubs? Yeah, I belong to the Elks. The Elks, huh? Mm -hmm. Oh, is that so? How long have you been in Elk? 30 years. Well, you're a fine-looking specimen. (laughs) How much would you charge to hang over my fireplace? Well, I might uh, do it for consideration. Now, what is the purpose of the Elks Club? Well, primarily charity, and uh, this year we're adopting the program of, nationally, of cerebral palsy, 
We initiated a program which we hope will be carried out throughout the United States. Well, all this world needs is more people like you, Fred. Grandpa, you're still happy, aren't you? Oh, yes, still happy. Well, I'm happy that you're happy. Well, I'm Confidentially, happy. now, in all your years of, of marriage, have you ever kissed anybody besides your wife? Well, not seriously. <laughs> well, you've got a wonderful opportunity right now, eh, Sherry? Oh, boy. <laughs> Sherry, you, you wouldn't mind kissing a man who's old enough to be your great-grandfather, would you? No. Okay, here we go. Fred, you can take the other side, huh? Okay, I'll do that. Well, now, let's get down to serious business. As though that wasn't, huh? <laughs> now, in just one minute, you're going to play your bet your life for a chance at the $1,500 question. Right, right now, there's an important matter I want you to know about. It's here! It's new! It's designed for you! DeSoto! Yes, revelation is the word to describe the pleasure you'll get driving as well as riding in the great new 1951 DeSoto. All across the country, in every state and every city, car owners are proving this to themselves by getting behind the wheel of this proud new car. They're experiencing, for the first time, what riding comfort there is in DeSoto's brand-new Auraflow shock absorbers and spring construction, as these wonderful new features level out the bumpiest roads. They're experiencing the thrill of the new, higher-powered DeSoto engine, with its extra get-up-and-go. They're relaxing on DeSoto's luxurious chair-high seats, and knowing an entirely new feeling of security because of DeSoto's bigger brakes that stop you quickly and easily. And, of course, it's DeSoto that lets you drive without shifting. So no wonder, all over the country they're buying the 51 DeSoto, that's a revelation to ride. See it tomorrow, for sure. All right, here we go. Now let's see how high you can build your $20. You selected familiar words beginning with the letter C. Here's your first question. You have $20. How much are you going to risk? Ten. You're partners in this together now. $10? What do you call a student in a military or naval academy? It begins with the letter C. Cadet. Cadet. A cadet is right. You have $30. You're flying high here, Pappy. You got $30. Remember, you're going for $1,500 tonight. How much of the $30 are you going to try? Well, we ought to try about $20, don't you think? All right, what do you call the freightman's car that is attached to a train? It begins with the letter C. Caboose. Caboose is right. Well, you're climbing. You have $50 now. All right, you got $50. Here's your third question. How much are you going to try? 45. That's right. Okay. 45. What do you call a crested bird of the parrot family? It begins with the letter C. Cockatoo. Cockatoo is right. <laughs> Now you have $95. Grandpa spent a lot of time in the woods, I think. <laughs> he wasn't chasing elks all the time. <laughs> Here's your last chance to beat the other couples. How much are you going to bet? Okay. 80 How bucks. much? 80 bucks. 80 bucks. What do you call the little colored pieces of paper thrown at parties and parades that begins with the letter C? Confetti is right.
up with a grand total of $175. Stick around, Sherry. I'll see you later. <laughs> well, Groucho, the secret word is still shoe. Uh, we invited some chefs from Mexican restaurants to the program tonight. And just before we went on the air, our studio audience selected Roque Valdivia. His partner is a housewife, Mrs. Kathleen Duffy. Folks, come in here and meet Groucho Marx. Welcome for the DeSoto Plymouth Dealers. Say the secret word and you divide $100. It's a common word, something you have with you. Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Kathleen Duffy. You're the housewife, huh? Eh? Yes, sir. Where, where are you from? That's a... Corsicana, Texas. Corsicana, Texas. I just needless to me to ask you uh, what uh, nationality you are. I mean, way back, I know you were born in this country. But Kathleen Duffy is really a good old Irish name, isn't it? Yes, sir. Can you speak Gaelic at all? <laughs> speak English? A little. Oh, that's enough for me. Huh? I, uh, where is your native uh, habitat? I just told you. Well, that serves me right for using words I don't understand. <laughs> What sort of work does your husband do? He's a personnel manager for CPS. CPS? Now, what is CPS? Well, that's California Physician Service, Blue Shield. Well, how'd you meet him? Were you, were you introduced to him? Well, there was more to it than that. Well, I hope so, but... Uh... <laughs> now, how'd you meet him, Katie? Well... I'll call you Katie, huh? All right. I'll I name you after a railroad. <laughs> I was coming home one afternoon. I'll make tracks for you later. (laughs) And as I came up the front walk, I saw this very nice-looking young man coming out the front door. And as he started down the front steps, I noticed that he had all of my silverware in his hands. And he explained to me that his mother had been having a dinner party or was going to have one. She had called my neighbor and had asked if she could borrow the neighbor's silver. So he had come to what he thought was the neighbor's house, but had gotten into my house by mistake and had picked up my silver and started out the door with it, and he wasn't a burglar at all. Were you disappointed? No. (laughs) You'll have to pardon me for being a little confused tonight. Somebody gave me a new boomerang for my birthday, and I've driven myself crazy trying to throw the old one away. (laughs) (laughs) What sort of work do you do, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Valdivia? Is that from a Mexican restaurant? You're from a Mexican restaurant? Oh, yes. Well, uh, buenas noches, senor. Buenas noches, senor. Como esta? Muy bien. ¿Y usted? I'm fine. I speak Spanish fluently, eh? huh? Be careful what you say. (laughs) Where are you usted from, senor? (laughs) Yo vengo de la República Mexicana, León, Guanajuato. Mexico. Well, is that uh, with coffee or just plain? <laughs> uh, what is the name of your uh, establishment? El Coyote Spanish Cafe, 105 North La Brea, Los Angeles. Well, what do you, what do you serve in your restaurant? Mexican food, dishes. Well, Mexican, Mexican dishes? dishes? Real Mexican dishes. Could you serve me a tall one who likes the smell of a good cigar? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, specifically, what do you serve? Like uh, chili con carne? Enchiladas, chili rellenos, tacos... And huevos y jamón. What time do you stop at Acapulco? Huh? <laughs> now, let's take them one, uh, one. Did you ever hear the Mexican weather report? Well, Chilly today and hot tamale? That's an old joke. Senior, <laughs> <laughs> why, why is Mexican food so hot? Well, it runs back to the history of the Indians that started growing the Chile. The Chile is very hot. The country is very warm. And 
country. So Mexico is a, is a hot country. Very hot country, Mexico. That's, that's hard because some, is, uh, some of my friends recently went to Mexico because it was too hot for them here in L.A. <laughs> <laughs> that's the first portion of You Bet Your Life, starring Groucho Marx from February 7th, 1955. We'll have the conclusion in the next hour. And in that next hour, we'll also have Jack Benny. So stick around. Hey, Lisa, before we go to news, I want to remind everyone listening that there are five free classic radio shows waiting for them at 100radioshows.com. Go to our website, 100radioshows.com, put your email address in, and you'll be sent five of the greatest classic radio shows of all time. I think I even know what they are. Go ahead. Let's see. Suspense, Richard Diamond, Private Detective, Gunsmoke, Jack Benny, and Fibber McGee and Molly. There they are. Five wow. of the best of the best. You know, and there's no notes and nothing. I just remember that <laughs> off the top of my head. You're not good at memorizing. <laughs> no, I'm really, really not. All right. When we come back from the news, it's the conclusion to You Bet Your Life. And we'll also have the Jack Benny program. So stick around. 